Welcome to the Falk Salem Podcast. Each month we'll bring you a mix of operational announcements and clinical pieces to keep you up to speed. Through our monthly podcasts, our goal is to put the tools and education right in the palm of your hand. By keeping you up to date, we hope that we can empower you to continue bringing exceptional medical care to the city of Salem and beyond. Any and all material we release has been edited to comply with HIPAA standards. Greetings and welcome to this, the June 2021 episode of the Falk Salem podcast. My name is Cole Van Epps. I'm a paramedic FTO with uh, Falk Ambulance here in Salem, Oregon. And together with my counterparts, Bianca Paul, uh, Dustin Pearson, and Chris Oakland, we are super proud to bring you this uh, this month's podcast that's just chocked full of really good content uh, discussing emergency medical services and uh, really the culture around uh, EMS and the things that we face together every single month. So welcome. Thanks for joining us. This particular month, we're going to start with a piece on duty to act, followed by our next installment on uh, strokes. Uh, this will be focusing on stroke assessments. Following that, we have a piece um, doing a case study with our own Dr. Clothier, uh, and that'll be focusing on uh, the difference between AAAs and uh, aortic dissections. Next, we have our employee spotlight. The next topic we have is our safety and wellness topic, where we'll be specifically discussing healthy coping mechanisms, as well as burnout and EMS. And the next installment in pediatrics will follow that where we'll be discussing pediatric trauma. Our final piece here for this month is our spotlight medication where Bianca will take us through all of the ins and outs of the medication atropine. Thank you again for joining us here today. We hope uh, the last month has been great for you and thanks for listening. Hi everyone. I'd like to take some time today to talk about our roles in pre-hospital care and patient care. Specifically, I'd like to talk about the duty to act. The lens I'm going to use this with is our duty to act when it comes to the safety of ourselves and our patients in a difficult situation. There's a great educational piece on this that was done by GEMS and in conjunction with ESL. We have a full presentation that outlines our duty to act, and I've referenced a lot of their material. So, let me explain and elaborate on our duty to act towards the safety of our patients. We as a system readily go to the use of physical and chemical restraints with a combative patient. When we look at these patients, we are interpreting that the patient is in danger to both themselves and to others. When we say they're a danger to others, that seems to be an easy way to interpret. It means that the patient's exhibiting signs and behaviors that can put others around them at risk, usually bystanders, police, fire, and EMS. That's easy to understand. But here's a second piece that's not usually evaluated. What does it mean when we say that the patient is a danger to themselves? This usually refers to excited delirium. So, what's excited delirium? Excited or agitated delirium is characterized by agitation, aggression, acute distress, and sudden death, often in the pre-hospital setting. 
is typically associated with the use of drugs that alter dopamine processing, hypothermia, and most notably, sometimes with death of the affected person in the custody of law enforcement. We see that one on the news. Subjects typically die from cardiopulmonary arrest, although the cause is sometimes debated. A mnemonic to remember the signs of excited delirium is not a crime. N, patient is naked and sweating from hyperthermia. O, patient exhibits violence against objects, especially glass. T, patient is tough and unstoppable with superhuman strength and insensitivity to pain. A, onset is acute. Witnesses usually say the patient just snapped. C, patient is confused regarding time, place, purpose, and perception. R, patient is resistant and won't follow commands to desist. I, patient's speech is incoherent, often with loud shouting and bizarre content. M, patient exhibits mental health conditions or makes you feel uncomfortable. E, EMS should request early backup and rapid transport to the ED. When we're on scene of a patient that's experiencing excited delirium, we're worried about rhabdomyolysis. Patients with rhabdo are similar to victims of fatal excited delirium with regard to age, gender, race, route of drug administration, and experiencing the excitement, delirium, and hyperthermia in the presence of seizures. Rhabdomyolysis is the breakdown of muscles. The combination of hyperthermia, agitation, and extreme exertion during excited delirium is responsible. Fighting against restraints is another precipitating factor to the increase in rhabdomyolysis. As muscles are broken down and become necrotic, potassium is released into the circulation and can produce hyperkalemia. Additionally, acute kidney injury can occur from direct damage to nephrons caused by myoglobin released in the bloodstream. Hypovolemia is also common in rhabdomyolysis and results from the extravision of fluid into the injured muscle. All right, so we've got a handle on excited delirium. Now, let me set the stage for you. You're called to the scene by police for a possible excited delirium patient. We've all been there. You show up and the police call you in. You found the patient on the ground, prone, and being physically restrained by police. The patient's agitated and police are attempting to control the situation. You want to get in there to evaluate the patient, but the police are shouting at you to chemically restrain the patient. What do you do? Well, the public expects you to act. We, as providers, have a legal, moral, and professional duty to act. We have the duty to take proper actions to prevent harm to the patient. We need to properly evaluate the patient to determine if they are in fact in the excited delirium. Are they actually a danger to themselves or others? Are we walking into a situation that can be de-escalated instead? Under our duty to act, we have a duty to assess the patient. If the scene remains safe, we have a duty to provide proper patient care. This means that we can't idly stand by and allow our patient to become worse. Look around you. 
evaluate the scene. Are you saying that police have the patient in an inappropriate hold? What I mean is, evaluate to see if your patient's in a chokehold. Are they prone? Next, evaluate the scene and see if anyone's being verbally abusive to your patient. Is this aggravating the patient more? Lastly, look around you and see if anyone's being physically abusive towards the patient. You have a duty to act. This means that if you're seeing any of these behaviors, you need to step in and stop it from continuing. When you're in doubt, take a deep breath and ask yourself, am I doing what another paramedic should or should not be doing in the same situation? If the answer is no, then you need to put steps in place to de-escalate the situation. Ask yourself, do you have an actual legal basis to restrain this patient? There needs to be a process in place that has a clear line of communication between yourself and police. Does your system have a process in place that outlines a clear transfer of control from police to EMS? Having a system in place for how to hand off reports are done between police and EMS would really improve the communication between the agencies. We already have an established way of giving handoff reports to the hospital. We have an established way of giving handoff reports between fire and EMS. So now's the time to ask yourself, do you have an established way of giving a handoff report between EMS and police? Having this clear communication line can help you in assessing your patient. In our world, we have a duty to provide proper patient care. We need to have a complete assessment of our patient. This includes vital signs. We need to get a blood pressure, pulse rate, respiratory rate, O2 sat, blood sugar, and temperature. Have an entitled CO2 nasal cannula on this patient. You have a legal and moral obligation to provide the best care to your patient. Document your patient's behavior using the Borset and RAS scores. So, what are some steps that you can take to reduce a negative patient confrontation? The GEMS webcast on a duty to act, maintaining compassion and safety for difficult patients provides a five-step process to reduce our behaviors with difficult patients. The first step, don't let complacency evolve into complicity. Don't become that person that goes along with the show. When you don't make the effort to engage in the situation, you become complacent. When you stand by and let actions continue in front of you, you become involved in the wrongdoing. This happened in the George Floyd case. The other officers on scene just stood by and watched the scene unfold in front of them and didn't step in to remedy the situation. The second step is to recognize implicit bias. Let me explain this. Explicit bias is clearly stated. This is a deliberate action and can be controlled. Examples of this are hate speech and discrimination. Implicit bias is different. This is an unconscious bias. It happens without an individual's awareness or intentional control. Let me give you an example. When you have a patient that doesn't have a home and called 911 for foot pain, what goes through your mind? We're all guilty of this, especially if it's 2 a.m. We treat people differently due to implicit bias. How do we address this? 
we need to provide training for our team to identify implicit bias and find ways to reduce and eliminate it. The third step is to promote a culture of accountability. We need to hold ourselves accountable to the standards of providing appropriate patient care. We need to do this every time. Have internal and external processes in place to ensure that we can keep ourselves responsible for our actions and treatment plans. Accountability is not what we do, but also what we don't do. We have principles of professional conduct where we assume responsibility for our actions and judgment. As healthcare professionals, we have a duty to question ourselves, a duty to question each other, and have a duty to accept responsibility for our care provided to our patients. The fourth step is to learn how to intervene when a bad behavior is observed. When bystanders, including ourselves, remain silent, we normalize the bad behavior. We're telling the aggressor that it's okay to perform those inappropriate actions. Others also see this as an acceptable conduct. We can't be a bystander to bad behavior, especially when we see a patient who needs us. Find ways to communicate with police or other providers. Do it with respect, but urgency. We're here for the patient. The last step is to include crisis intervention and de-escalation techniques to our patient care training. At our organization, we've identified that this is an area of improvement for us all. Because of this, we've implemented mandatory training that focuses on de-escalation tactics and learning ways to escape a violent encounter. Find a training that focuses on verbal skills needed to reduce the tension in a situation. We have a duty to act. We need to take a direct approach in evaluating and caring for our difficult patients. Find opportunities and trainings that focus on making a difference in the care of our patients. Constantly challenge yourself to grow and improve in your social and medical skills. We all got in this field to help others. Now, it's your time to prove it. For our next installment on further discussing strokes and stroke care in the field, I'd like to use this month's episode to focus more on bettering stroke assessments. Now, in our area, we are really trying to identify strokes early on, and we are using the CSTAT score as well as the BFAST exam. Now, if you're unfamiliar with what those look like, CSTAT stands for the Cincinnati Pre-Hospital Stroke Severity Scale. And it uses a scale to try and identify large vessel occlusions, right? So it is looking at a patient's er, conjugate gaze deviation, right? So this is going to be somebody whose eyes are rolled up off to a side or just gazing in one particular direction. Um, And uh, that goes for two points. Um, Another one is incorrectly answers at least one or two 
um, level of consciousness questions, right? Things like how old are you or what is the current month, right? And also is not able to follow at least one of two commands. Can you close your eyes or open and close your hands, right? And uh, you're gonna assign them one point if they can't do that. So this would be a patient then who is altered for their level of consciousness and is having some sort of a neurologic deficit, either to a facial nerve or to like um, facial um, expressions or is even having like unilateral weakness or unilateral paralysis, hemiparesis um, in their body. The final point uh, that you can uh, address with this is can they not hold their arms up straight in front of them for 10 seconds, right? Before one of them falls down to the bed. So this is gonna be, you have them hold out their arms, palm side up, and you have them close their eyes, hold their hands out there in front of them, and you're looking for arm drift uh, to kind of see how that looks. And as we're uh, comparing like what that looks like, Anything that has a score of two or greater is considered a positive C-STAT score and is associated with a more likely large vessel occlusion. So remember that if they have the uh, disconjugate gaze, that's an automatic two-pointer right there, immediate C-STAT positive, right? If they have arm weakness um, and uh, like they can't, take their arms and keep them held up in front of them and one of their arm is drifting down, okay, that's a, a score of one. You're not quite to that two yet um, and we still need the level of consciousness. They need to be altered to at least two questions um, to the level of consciousness piece and they need to not be able to follow um, one simple command that you need them to do. So that's the C-STAT score. And that's really just looking for large vessel occlusions, but small vessel occlusions, um, things like, um, you know, maybe they just have a problem walking or maybe they just have a problem with like some of their vision, we might end up missing a few more of those things. So um, in our particular area, we are combining the BFAST exam as well as the CSTAT exam. So BFAST stands for balance, loss of balance or headache or dizziness, an expression of dizziness, either with their eyes open or closed, that may be a sign. Um, blurred vision or change in vision, loss of vision in a visual field, um, not just in front of them, but off to the periphery of the eyes. Maybe they've completely lost one of their visual fields or lost vision in one of their eyes. Uh, facial droop on one side or the other is the F for the BFAST exam. And we're looking for that facial droop on one side or the other, that classic stroke-like uh, presentation. Um, arms, once again, we're reassessing the arms for weakness. Um, are they unable to move or lift, you know, one arm or that sort of a thing? But we're also looking at leg weakness now. Are they able to move one of their legs or is one of their legs also similarly paralyzed, right? Speech, difficulty with their, their speaking. Are they able to articulate the words? Um, or like what uh, Dr. Clothier so eloquently put in a previous episode, are they presenting with word salad? Is there all the different flavors that you might be looking for except for some level of 
<laughs> being able to actually make a coherent speech uh, or a coherent sentence um, with all of this. So that's B-E-F-A-S. The T in the BFAST exam stands for time, right? Um, what was the time of onset of these symptoms? And something that we're adding to this that needs to be addressed by EMS is um, adding that additional question, when were they last seen normal, right? Because remember what Clothier was talking about in his presentation, just because they called 911 because they just now recognized the symptoms as a stroke right now is not necessarily the time of onset. It could actually be that this is just when they discovered the problem and they were last seen normal hours before. And that might change what we have available or how we're gonna be able to uh, treat this patient in the field. So that's the CSTAT exam and the BFAST exam. I wanna to try to, however, arm you with a few more tools to put in your toolbox. And um, the MEND exam is another uh, exam that uh, um, you could add to your repertoire as well to kind of uh, further look for um, interruptions in blood flow or look for deficits that might clue you in at least a little bit more on what a stroke uh, might look like. So the MEND exam stands for the Miami Emergency Neurologic Deficit Exam. And it's a screening tool and it relies on tests very similar to um, the Cincinnati Stroke Scale or uh, some of the others that went through like, you know, the LA uh, Stroke Scale. Um, the the progression of this, though, adds a few more tools that I found to be pretty uh, helpful in helping me to identify neurologic deficits that may be concerning um, uh, in the field here. So when we're talking about addressing a patient overall and we're going to do a neuro exam, right, um, that patient needs to have a strong level of consciousness. That patient needs to be alert. If they're not alert, right? We really can't follow through with a lot of the BFAST, CSTAT, or even the MEND exams. So you need to have an alert patient, somebody who's, you know, maybe attempting to communicate with you, right? Um, start with their speech and start thinking about the head, start thinking about what you're seeing up there. Um, ask them to repeat the phrase, you cannot teach an old dog new tricks. You're looking for wrong words, misplaced words, slurring of their speech. If they're attempting to speak and all you're getting is muffled tones, right? Um, that may be a positive piece right there. Ask them like your orientation questions. How old are you? What's the month? What's the year? How many quarters do I have in a dollar? If the patient is so far performing this, okay. Maybe take it a step further and ask them, okay, how many quarters are in a dollar? If I subtracted 25 cents from that, how many quarters would I have left? That asks them to do a simple math question, but it asks them to reach back into their brain and take out information, interpret what you're saying, and come up with an answer for you, right? That patient right there might have some neurologic deficits. Now, just because they come up with the wrong answer, that doesn't mean that this is a stroke but it definitely shows you that there's an interruption in like thinking in their brain. Maybe there's another identifiable reason there. Maybe they have dementia or maybe they have some cognitive problems, right? Um, 
maybe this uh, patient just, you know, they're just altered um, a little bit here. But this is going to give you an idea, once again, about how well their brain is working. Then have them follow some symptom, simple commands. Can you open your eyes? Can you close your eyes tight? Um, and then as you're going down and checking the cranial nerves, which is going to be kind of our next um, set of exams here with the amend exam, we're going to ask them to further follow even more commands. Ask them to give you a big smile, show you all their teeth. Ask them to stick out your tongue. Um, you know, ask you know, as you're looking at that, see if they're favoring one side or another, if you're noticing that facial droop, right? Have them squeeze both of their eyes tight, then have them raise their eyebrows up on both sides, right? Um, ask them if it feels the same on both sides of their face as you draw your fingers down both sides of their face, or if one side feels more numb than the other side. Ask them to see if they can move their head from side to side. Ask them if they can track your finger and move your hand through different um, visual fields here as they track your finger with, your, uh, with their eyes. Watch as those eyes move. They might lose sight of your finger in an area where they absolutely could be looking at your finger. They may try and then their eyes come right back on you thinking that you've moved your finger outside of their visual field. Another thing you can do is hold both of your hands far out to the outside of the periphery and then move one side or the other and ask the patient to identify which side is moving. Not only that, but do that in the upper fields on the periphery, but do it in the lower fields in the periphery. You might discover that they have a blind spot there that they didn't even know existed. You also might notice that in some of the times when you're walking up to the patient, when you're attempting to address them, you startle them, even though you were sitting right next to them the whole time. Maybe they have a visual field anomaly here that is a very small stroke in an area, but that might be something that we need to kind of address or put in the back of our mind here. Look for any sort of disconjugate gaze as well as you're looking through um, their visual fields. Sometimes these patients will look right at the stroke. Um, now we get down to kind of a little bit more of an assessment of the limbs. Have them open and close both of their hands. Have them squeeze your fingers on both sides. Is it strong? Is one side more weak than the other? Not only that, but then have them do a push-pull. Hold on to their wrists and have them pull and kind of curl their biceps back towards them. Then hold on to their wrists and have them push their arms back away from you to look to see if there's any sort of a deficit there. Do the arm drift, hands up on both sides. Have them close their eyes and see if one side drifts down um, or you know one side or the other. Um, at the same thing, come down both arms with your hands. Get into the areas like around like the forearms where they're the most sensitive and ask the patient, do they feel the same on both sides? Does it feel like one side is more numb than the other as you're running their hands uh, down their arm here? You might notice that they have a loss of sensation on one side, but they're still able to perform some motor deficits. This is also a great adaptation for somebody who has a rotator cuff problem. How many patients have you run into in the field that are like, yeah, I'd love to hold my hand up there for you, but my shoulder's messed up from a previous problem. Okay, well, let's do a few more things. Push pulls. Let's try the arm, the uh, grips. Let's try the sensation on either side to see if we can identify an anomaly here um, in their arms. 
Let's talk a little bit about their legs here, right? Um, same thing with the legs. A lot of times we get down there and you just kind of put your hands down. You say, hey, can you push against my hands? Cool. Um, you ask them if they can wiggle their toes on either side, and maybe that's about it. There's more that we can do with uh, legs, especially with a patient that, remember, might have problems with their balance or might have problems with walking, and we don't want to try to see if they have deficits with walking, right? Let's do something with their legs to see if they have a problem with their motor skills in their legs. You can start by try the uh, sensation test, kind of going down their legs. Do, does either side, does this feel the same? Or does either side feel more um, numb on one side or the other? Be careful with that too, because things like peripheral vascular disease, things like peripheral neuropathy, um, swelling in the legs, edema in the legs can absolutely give them abnormal sensation in their legs or their feet. So we have to add a grain of salt to that as well. But have them pull up against your hands, push down against your hands, put either hand on either side of their calves and try to have them spread their legs apart like scissors. And then put your hands on the inside and have them try to bring their legs back together. Another great assessment tool here, unbuckle that uh, leg strap on the cot and ask the patient to take their heel on one side and place it on their shin on the other side and have them try to draw their heel from their ankle to their kneecap back up and down that shin on one side and see if they can do the same thing on the other side. That really tests coordination, muscle control, as well as those extensor and, and uh, flexor muscles on the leg. That's a, that's a hard thing to do. Um, for a patient who has problems in that area. But if you can coach them into doing it, you might get a really good litmus on how coordinated there are on, in their legs, right? Um, another thing to think about here as far as like a coordination test and a coordination drill, um, kind of going back to testing a little bit more of the cognitive ability and also their ability to see and ration and reason and also their ability to think about their own proprioception or their place in space at the moment is to have them take their index finger and touch their nose. Take your index finger then and put it in a very obvious place in front of their visual field. Ask them to take their index finger, touch your nose, or excuse me, touch their nose and then touch your index finger and have them bring it back and forth a couple of times. Then have them switch hands their left maybe now to their nose, to your finger, to your nose, to their finger. Then take your finger and put it in different visual fields, put it in different places, move it around and see if they can continue to target seek with their index finger from their nose back to your finger. This is showing you if they're able to rationalize, if they're able to recognize what they need to do to plan their actions from point A to point B, if they're able to follow commands, if they have fine motor control in this sort of an area. And it also helps you to really check their visual fields at the same time. This sounds like a lot, but when we start thinking about why we're doing it, put on your computer technician hat, right? And think about the brain as a computer. If something isn't working, if I'm clicking on an icon and it's not opening, I can just, you know, kind of safely say there might be a problem with that program. The brain is the same thing. 
We're just checking the programs. Can they use their hands? Can they use their legs? Do we have one side that's being favored over the other? Do we have deficits in one point or another? And initially, um, a long time ago, when I took this class called ASLS, and to be quite honest, I'm not exactly sure if advanced stroke life support is even something that's still out there. Um, they were really talking about the MEND exam and they were talking about using this to help even try to target where a stroke might be um, inside of the brain. Now, that was some number of years ago and um, I'm not nearly as proficient in this as I would like to think that I am. However, I do find that exam to have stuck with me as being very comprehensive as a way to test a patient's neurologic behaviors here to try to really find gross motor deficits as well as finite motor deficits. And it covers the C-STAT, it covers the BFAST, it covers these um, more macro level EMS based exams that are hoping to find the large vessel occlusions and even some of the smaller vessel occlusions there. And it also helps us to obtain the goal, which is to identify neurologic deficits early and get these patients to a hospital with a stroke alert pending to get that patient to a CT scanner, to get that patient under a, a doctor's watchful eye and to get the stroke process moving forward. Because if we can identify it early and get them inside of the right treatment window to um, clot buster kind of medications, ruling out of course, like you know major bleeds and other things, we could save a lot of tissue with this. We could save a lot of memories. And if you remember a little bit more about what we've been talking about with this series on strokes, that's what we're fighting for. We're fighting for that penumbra. We're fighting for the ischemic tissue that has not yet infarcted. And we are trying to limit how long it has a chance to eat away at this patient's personality, their brain, their cognitive function, their independence for the rest of their life, right? And this isn't an old person problem. This affects the young too. So put that in the back of your mind that this exam, you can apply it towards the young. You can apply it towards the uh, elderly. You can practice this exam um, in your daily practice if you just want to do a really good neurologic exam on someone. This could be the football player who got their bell rung in a game. This could be that person who's in a car accident and hit the windshield. This could be someone who is complaining of some sort of a migraine that now you're starting to see something like facial droop, arm drift, loss of balance, those sorts of things. This should clue you in that you're having neurologic deficit and the brain has some sort of an impact there. And this is where you're gonna start to see some of these performances slip, right? Now the, uh, um, the hospital is going to do another set of exams. However, their exam is known as the NIHSS, or the National Institutes of Health Stroke Scale. And it was developed to help physicians objectively rate the severity of ischemic strokes. Um, increasing scores indicate the more severe stroke. Um, and this has really been studied pretty heavily as far as showing a direct correlation with an increase in score being directly correlating to the increase in size of an infarct um, that they may be seeing here. So um, this evaluation tool, it's, it's a bit more complicated than 
um, like what we're doing in the field. And, you know, this uh, tool definitely covers some of the big macro tests uh, that we're doing um, in ambulance. But a lot of times we take kind of some of the best of what uh, people are doing and we condense it down. We make it into the Reader's Digest version to use a, a, an old uh, phrase there. Um, we try to make it fast. We try to make it um, um, a little bit more quick so that we can do them in the field and transport them early. The NIH takes time and it takes uh, some time to really like go through and uh, follow through, kind of like the MEND exam does. And each one of the points that's addressed in the NIH is, uh, has a certain number of uh, you know, points associated with them. Some of them are zeros for you know, everything is good, um, all the way one with just like some minor problems, two with some uh, major problems, and three with some critical problems that you might see. And overall, as you're getting down towards the, the end of this exam here, that total score um, is out of the highest possible score, which is 42, which is obviously consistent with like a really profound stroke. You know, the higher the score uh, all the way through 42 is that, you know, potential that could potentially be um, a pretty high score. Um, a score as low as one or four uh, from one to four could obviously indicate a mild stroke in one very you know small specific area. So the NIH is also supposed to try to be hypersensitive um, to what we're trying to do here. And not only that, but a lot of hospitals have standards that they're trying to meet where they're trying to do this stroke assessment as soon as the patient comes in within 10 minutes, right? And then it keeps happening on a very regular interval as this patient progresses. And they're documenting this in, you know, like Meditech or Epic or whatever their documentation software is. They're trying to do this on a very regular timed basis so that we can see these scores progressing. Sure, they might've started at a four, but in 10 minutes, if their score is now an 11, and then that score increases to a 15, that's a progressively moving stroke. And that might be indicative of something. Whereas when we try to use a C-STAT or a BFAST and they're positive, cool, they're positive. Or it's not really giving us a good metric to try to see how positive they are if they're getting even worse than what they were from before. So um, in summary, the NIH looks at the level of consciousness and rates it on a scale from one to three. Um, they're doing the same orientation questions um, and they have to be exact with that. Um, they're asking them to follow some basic commands, opening their eyes, opening their grips. Can you grab my hands, do things like that. Looking at their um, horizontal gaze and like watching them move that uh, horizontal gaze with like through um, like their reflexes here. And that uh, has a certain score. Then they're checking their visual fields to see if in, there's any sort of a... Um, um, a deficit or some place where they are um, excluding their visual fields anywhere. Then they're going to look for facial paralysis. Once again, kind of going back to those cranial nerves, right? They're going to be looking for signs of like a grimace to pain if that patient is um, unconscious or if that patient is semi-conscious on the AVPU scale, right? Um, so if they cause a painful stimulus, do they see uh, the symmetry of the face there? If there's a grimace, if there's a like a grimace to that pain, if that's happening there. 
they're gonna check the right and the left um, side, not only the arms, but the legs to look and see what does that um, look like. So if they can e extend their arms outstretched to 90 degrees if they're sitting or to 45 degrees, if they can raise their arms up to that 45 degrees for 10 seconds while they're laying supine, or if they're sitting up straight and they come out 90 degrees like a zombie here in front of them, that's gonna be really good. If they can't hold it for the full 10, that's gonna give them a bit of a score. If they can't do it at all, it's gonna give them a major score out of, a, out of potentially four points um, that we might see there. And then the other thing that they're gonna be testing here for the legs is, can they raise their leg to 30 degrees off of the bed? Can they hold out their knee and hold out their leg for five seconds on either side to see if there's any sort of like a, of a change there? Um, can they do the finger to nose, finger to nose? Can they do the heel to shin, sliding that up and down from their ankle up to their knee and back down, right? And they wanna see if there's, um, uh, this sort of a problem, especially if they're seeing this on both on one side of their body, that might be a really big indication of a problem here. Um, they're gonna use some sort of a sensory piece where they're going to have the patient close their eyes and they're going to use like a pin and they're going to not prick the skin, but they're gonna use some sort of a, hey, can you feel this in different places of their hands and different places of their feet to see if they can actually have some sort of a sensation there. Not typically something we do in the back of the ambulance using a sharp device like that, but in a controlled environment like the hospital, yeah, that's a, a great test to do. Um, asking the patient to um, describe something. Um, they look at something in the room or they look at a picture and they try to describe something in the picture. And it's usually some sort of an abstract picture. Like um, I think one that was used for a while had to do something with like a cookie jar and uh, they would describe something in it. What that really means is, is can they cognitively look at something, rationalize what it is, formulate a sentence, and then describe it to you using their computer to run all of those programs there? Thinking about the language, the vocabulary, the sentence structure and syntax, the tense, and like looking at how that works with that patient. The real key with that is, it needs to be done in their native language. You know, so if the patient is non-English speaking, it needs to be done in their native language. So we're testing it on the basic functionality of their ability to describe this. Um, when we're talking about the patient again, about how they're able to um, describe things and just overall, how is their, uh, um, how is their speech going? Um, and then, um, you know, we're gonna look at this and we're gonna see if this patient has any uh, problems with inattention or they just completely neglect one side of their body or the other. So thinking about what the NIHSS kind of looks like here, should give you an appreciation for how many different things, you know, somebody is uh, looking at here when we're doing this in hospital and trying to recognize what that looks like. And that's a kind of a nationally accredited sort of a test that um, looks at all of these different fields kind of going down there and communicating that to neurology. But in some cases, EMS, this is just way too much for us to do in the field. So we rely on CSTAT and BFAST in our area here to 
um, guide our protocols and to use that to look quickly and effectively for large vessel occlusions. And then even looking for the small vessel stuff like the balance stuff that comes out of um, a BFAST exam or the dizziness. And it doesn't take much for us to be able to activate a stroke alert based along those protocols. So a uh, couple more tools to put in the toolbox, a little bit more knowledge uh, to have here. Um, next month, I wanna talk about other things other than uh, blood vessel occlusion that causes uh, stroke-like symptoms. So we're definitely gonna talk about brain bleeds, but I also wanna talk about other things that potentially enter the brain that cause a uh, interruption in blood flow to vessels. So. Uh, should be another good topic um, addressing things like nitrogen and uh, things that happen during pregnancy, uh, um, things like that. So stay tuned for that. Thank you guys so much for listening and uh, hopefully everything's great for you and have a great day. For this month, we are joined yet again by our physician advisor, uh, Dr. Brian Clothier from the Salem, Oregon area. Thank you, Doc, for jumping in with us and uh, giving us some of your time. Hi, Cole. Appreciate the time. Thanks. Uh, I hear you got a good case review for us here today. Something uh, like kind of interesting. So, anytime I have a case that makes me feel a little bit stupid, I think it's a good one to talk about because <laughs> uh, I missed the boat on this one. I'll just tell you that up front. So, uh, a crew about oh maybe eight thirty or so in the morning brought me in a seventy-five-year-old woman. And the complaint was chest pain, but when you asked her about it, she said her chest had a burning sensation in it. And I asked her when it started, and she said she felt well when she went to bed and then woke up in the morning and still felt fine and then kind of rolled over, and that's when the burning sensation started. So I started asking her a lot of GI questions. She said she took Prilosec, and that was the uh, indicator for me that maybe she had some acid reflux. There's a lot of stomach acid sitting in the stomach in the morning. And uh, when I first looked at her, her vitals were fantastic. She's not diaphoretic. She's sitting propped up in the bed. She looks really comfortable, uh, but she does kind of clutch her chest a little bit and say, yeah, it's still kind of burning right here. So I didn't get a chance to talk to the crew uh, like I would normally like to, but uh, I found in the nursing notes that it said that there was a history of a AAA so I went back and asked the patient about that. And uh, she, of course, doesn't know that terminology, but I asked her about an aneurysm in her abdomen and she knew nothing about that. Uh, I said, is there something wrong with one of the blood vessels in there? And she knew nothing about that. Uh, but she said she didn't have any abdominal pain. Interesting. And said she felt pretty well. So just kind of right off the top. Yeah, right off the top, Cole, what, what would you think about doing in this situation if you were me? Well, I mean, the the general consensus is that she's having a new symptom. She's having something that is bothering her enough. And it's that classic thing that kind of sends shivers down my spine of it awoke me from sleep or I had it persisting even beyond like a general gas feeling or something like that. Peaks my interest a bit. Uh, I want a 12 lead, of course, and I want to try to kind of look at this. But the presentation of like a hot burning sensation sounds acid reflux um you know doing a 12 lead is minimally invasive so we could get a little curious about that but if the 12 lead looks normal it doesn't sound as cardiac as i might think makes me wonder a little bit about where the uh a information came from like maybe it was a an old record or like a repeat patient or that sort of a thing but immediately it, it doesn't seem like she's 
you know, like a STEMI at least. Right. I agree. I think whenever we hear chest pain, we think about heart attacks and STEMIs first, and then we can broaden our minds a little bit and think about uh, a pulmonary embolism or if there's trauma, of course, we're thinking about cracked ribs or a pneumothorax or pericardial tamponade or, you know, any of these other things that can cause chest discomfort. Uh, and I always find that I have to kind of pry my brain open a little bit and make that mental list of, okay, what else could this be? Uh, because I'm going to be forced to do that anyway when my lab tests start coming back normal and I realize that I haven't kind of been thorough enough. Yeah. So in her case, her 12 lead looked great. Uh, her cardiac enzymes were negative. I sent off a D-dimer, which of course is a test that we have that measures for disruption of the vascular endothelium and that came back negative as well. And when I first saw her, I uh, ordered what we call in the business a GI cocktail. It's basically some lidocaine and some Maalox, and that's not a wonder drug, but it will knock out pretty much any acid, esophageal stomach kind of problem. Uh, unfortunately, for reasons nobody can quite explain, it seems to help with uh, myocardial infarction, chest pain as well. So it's not good to distinguish uh, one source of chest pain from another, but it does make most people feel better. Interesting. So all that came back normal, and I gave her the GI cocktail, and I went back in to check on her, and she said uh, that she felt no better. She ranked her pain at about a 10, and said that uh, she still just had this burning sensation. Yeah, going into like even more differential diagnosis, it, does that maybe even start making me thinking about like a gallstone or like a and was it related to like a greasy meal or like a really heavy meal, um, even like a pancreatitis or something like that? I But you said that like her lab values looked okay. Yeah, absolutely. Those are all great thoughts. What I did is I went back and I read through the chart again and I went back to talk to her again and I was trying to figure out what it was that I was missing. And this medic note saying the triple A kind of haunted me uh, because she said she didn't know anything about it. And I thought, well, where did that piece of information come from? And I think what this highlights is kind of some of the inherent communication issues that we have in medicine sometimes. I don't know if the medic thought she said AAA and so that was passed on to me, or if she said, well, I had some other medical problem and she tried to describe it and the medic assumed that she was talking about a AAA. But either way, I decided that I needed to know for certain what that referred to so that I had nothing dangerous left on the list. I started digging back into her chart and what I found was several years ago she had been diagnosed with not an abdominal aortic aneurysm but a thoracic aortic aneurysm oh. and it was stable and they were just kind of watching it and they all said you know the risk of surgery is probably greater than any benefit you might get from this so we're just going to leave it alone. Um, so once I found that back in the chart from a few years before then I knew I had to chase that down a little bit better. I sent her quickly over for a CT scan and found that she had dissected her aorta from the very beginning of the aorta, the uh, just proximal to the arch right where it leaves the heart and went all the way down through her chest and went all the way down past her uh, renal arteries and all the way down to her iliac arteries. So basically her entire aorta. And so uh, this is that, a dissection, that, right? So this is where the lumen is starting to separate on the inside of the vessel with every heartbeat it continues that rip 
exactly right. Yep, exactly right. So uh, a dissection is just as you said, that inner layer, the endothelium gets disrupted. And the more the heart beats with each, you know, a bit of pulse pressure, the more it will dissect. And in the textbook, the patients will always complain of a ripping sensation in their chest and they come in looking like death and it's all very dramatic. But in my experience, I've seen a few of these uh, elderly females in my experience who will describe a very gentle movement that precipitated their event. I remember I um, was taking care of a patient once and the gentleman was in the bed and his wife leaned over to pick up his shoes and move them out of the way and put them there next to uh, his patient belongings bag. And as she did so, she got this um, tight sensation in her back she thought was a pulled muscle. And then she asked to be seen because she didn't feel well. And it took a little time for me to extrapolate that into the fact that she had uh, dissected her aorta just as she bent over to pick up his shoes. So the mechanism of injury, uh, you know, back in the days before we had good airbags, crumple zones, shoulder belts, we would see traumatic aortic dissections semi-frequently after a high-velocity car accident just from the deceleration injury. But nowadays they are uh, less common and they tend to present in older patients who have less trauma or even no trauma, which could include just rolling over in the bed. Jeez. Now with the dissection, um, kind of peeling back another cobweb in my head here, you mentioned that it included the aortic arch. Um, did it have uh, any presentation with like abnormal uh, pulses, like between arms or abnormal blood pressures between arms? That's a great question. In this case, it did not. We often check for those kinds of things. Uh, the other unusual presentation you can see in these sometimes, because as it goes through that aortic arch, remember the big blood vessels that go to the brain and the upper extremities come off in the arch. So sometimes your patients will have uh, stroke-like symptoms and it's an aortic dissection. Sometimes they can come out in acute renal failure because they're not getting blood flow to one of their kidneys because of that dissection. So the mantra in emergency medicine is chest pain plus neurosymptoms is a dissection until proven otherwise. So in all of our chest pain patients, we need to be thinking about those neurosymptoms and in all of our stroke patients, we want to know whether or not they had chest pain because that might point us in the right direction. And the aneurysm we were talking about before, that's a weakened spot of a vessel wall, kind of like a, a weakened part of the balloon that bulges out, but it doesn't continue down the lumen. It's that one weak spot. And in her case, that was in her thoracic cavity versus the abdominal cavity. So uh, not a triple A, but uh, um, a TAA, I guess, if that's a, if that's a thing. Um, and that presents even more differently than what the dissection presents like. Right. So the aneurysm goes through all three layers of the vascular wall. And when those uh, rupture, uh, it, it's not that dissection that we described. It's a frank rupture. Those patients tend to die very quickly. Uh, the only thing that slows down their death is sometimes they're bleeding into somewhat of a confined space in the retroperitoneum or you know, in the areas uh, of the abdomen. So sometimes we can pick those patients up in time to save them, but those patients frequently die uh, between the time of their rupture and before they could get to definitive care just because it moves so fast. 
Okay. All right. Now, pre-hospitally, um, maybe I'm recognizing signs of a dissection. I'm seeing, you know, some of these things that we're talking about here, and I'm really kind of concerned about that. Is there anything pre-hospitally that I can do to help slow its progression or that I should be careful of attempting to do that might increase its progression? I think particularly in our system where we've got short transport times, the number one thing for all of you uh, folks in the field to do is just keep a broad differential, keep an open mind. That's the secret to successful medicine uh, because I may or may not think of it. In this particular instance, I thought of it, but it took me and uh, I would appreciate the help if one of you guys thought of it and said, hey doc, what do you think about a dissection with this presentation? And bam, that could be enough to put it on my radar and help me make the diagnosis faster. Understood. Now, I'm really curious with this kind of a patient, what what do we do from that point on in the hospital? Like what's the, is there a treatment modality? Is there a, like a prognosis with this? Uh... Yeah, perfect question. So uh, short term, the emergency management is to try to decrease that pulse pressure because as you said before, with every beat, they're just dissecting a little bit more of that inner layer off. So the uh, circulation goals that you set are to lower the heart rate below 60 beats a minute and to keep the systolic blood pressure below 120 millimeters of mercury. So there's several different ways to do that. Sometimes we'll give IV beta blockers. Uh, Esmolol is a good choice and uh, that will significantly slow the rate of the heart. And then you can drop the blood pressure using something like nicardipine or uh, IV labetalol can be started uh, as an infusion. And that is kind of a one drug strategy that will do both. So these aren't medications that we're carrying in um, drip form on the ambulance, uh, but it's not beyond the realm of possibility that you might have to transport one of these patients in our facility. So it's good to have a little bit of familiarity with why we're giving these medications and, and what they're for. Gotcha. Uh, the definitive treatment, of course, is surgery. Uh, and depending on the exact anatomy of the dissection, this is something that can certainly be handled at Salem Hospital. We have good coverage by vascular surgeons. For this particular patient, though, uh, I spoke with the vascular surgeon. I let him know that it was a dissection of the top first part of the arch. They call that a Stanford A, or sometimes they call that a DeBakey type one or two. And those uh, just signify to the surgeon which part of the aortic arch it is. Those you've really got to get on very quickly. Uh, and in this case, the surgeon was scrubbed in and just starting another procedure that was supposed to take four or five hours. So he requested that I call in uh, air medical transport and that we get the patient to another vascular surgeon in Portland as quickly as we could. So. I started the medications, I worked on bringing the heart rate and blood pressure down, and uh, then made arrangements to get the patient up to Portland. Huh, wow, interesting. So big pearls out of this. Um, you mentioned that chest pain plus neurosymptoms has a high suspicion of dissection, that dissections are different than uh, aneurysms, both of which are inherently risky, but that uh, dissections can have that ripping and tearing sort of a presentation, um, or it could even be like what you were saying in the older females, kind of this minimal movement that all of a sudden started this uh, stranger presentation that looked a little bit more GI, but wasn't responding to typical treatments. 
and just to keep an open mind when we're looking at these patients about all the different uh, differential diagnoses that are there. And it may be, you know, kind of one of these underlying hidden things and ask the big questions about their medical history. Hey, have you ever had a vessel problem? Have you ever been diagnosed with anything? And make sure we're clearly projecting that out if that's still on the table and it's something that we're suspecting to try to clue in providers about that. Yeah, I think it's really challenging for the patients to necessarily understand medical lingo. So I, I'm always trying to come up with new ways to try to get the information out of patients that I need to help them. Uh, one I've recently been using is I say things like, has your cardiologist recommended any procedure to you that has not yet been completed? Interesting. And with, with a question like that, they'll say, oh, well, he's been telling me I need a bypass, but I've been putting that off. Interesting. Really yeah. That's a red flag for me. Wow. No, that's a good question. That, that, is, that opens you up to all kinds of possibilities about medication changes or things that they're suggesting might be coming up in the future or things that might need to be repeated that to them is just, you know, bread and butter type of uh, changes that they don't feel like is something to bring up at this point. Interesting. Great. All yeah, right. that and uh, uh, I'll throw in the plug for the communication one more time. Uh, I found this sooner than I because I was thinking vascular because of the report of AAA but I didn't find it as quickly as I would have if I'd known that it was a thoracic uh, aneurysm or uh, as opposed to an abdominal aortic aneurysm. So chasing those kinds of things down and uh, trying to be precise in our communication is super helpful. Excellent. Okay. Well, thank you for your time. I appreciate it. And uh, thanks again for joining us on the podcast. All right, Cole. Have a great month. See you later. Hello, everyone. For today's employee spotlight, I've got with me Madison Prout. Madison, or Maddie, it's very hard for me to say Madison, has been with Falk Salem for the past year. She's been a highlight in our organization. She's a strong paramedic, kind individual, and a model employee. All of us here at the company have watched Madison evolve in her medicine. So, without further ado, everyone, Meet Maddie. Hi, guys. Hi. <laughs> Thanks for coming on today. Um, so tell me a little bit about your career path, how you became a paramedic. How'd you end up here? Sure. I think at 15 or 16 years old, I knew I wanted to do some sort of work in the medical field. So my twin sister and I knew a family friend that volunteered at a local rural fire department, and we decided to get into their cadet program oh. and get our EMRs, our EMR certs. And I fell in love with it, so at 16, I became a lifeguard for a couple years. And then when I hit 18, I did EMT and then went straight into medic school. And then during medic school, I worked for like a occupational health clinic where I did like DUI blood draws, breath alcohol tests. Really? Yeah, it was fun. Not as fun as this place, but fun. <laughs> and then I came straight here, and I don't know, it's kind of a very straight path for me. I think the only regret I have is not working for a 911 agency as an EMT. So it was a really sharp learning curve when I got here. Yeah, it was the same thing for me. I just skipped, um, oh, I went to EMT school, but I never worked as an EMT. I just went straight to medic school. And oh my goodness, was it a culture shock 
when I actually started working on an ambulance and I'm like, oh no. For sure. <laughs> so you, wait, you were a cadet. Where were you a cadet at? Um, it's called Pleasant Hill Goshen Fire. It's down south about an hour. Um, they had a program that you could be a part of until you're 18 to get some experience. And so I did EMRs, stuff like that. And you got to help with fires and it was a pretty cool program. So I don't know much about the cadet program, only because I'm very much a medicine person and not yeah. a fire person. What is what is that? It's a way to get people that are still in high school a taste of that career. Okay. And so they allow younger kids under 18 to come in and be a part of all their duties. And then when they turn 18, if they still like it, they will add them to the fire department. Oh, wow. So it's kind of... Uh unpaid internship pretty much yeah got it hmm. was it valuable i really enjoyed it yeah you have three years of experience before you even become 18 okay yeah that's pretty <laughs> impressive <laughs> you win yeah so let's focus on your time here what are some of the learning points that have helped you grow as a paramedic now that you're working as a paramedic well, I've definitely learned to not expect perfection every call. <laughs> I have to give myself some grace. That was a hard thing to learn because I ended shifts unhappy every time. Mm. Um, I also work with some really smart people and have great resources to tap into. So I've learned to humble myself and ask lots of questions. That way I can know the answer for the next call instead of just continuing to not know. Mm. Those are really good points. Well, thank you. This is why we like Madison so much, guys. <laughs> so what advice do you have for someone that's starting their paramedic career or their EMT career? Well, it's definitely scary, especially if you're starting off new. There's so much to learn and you feel like you're never going to know everything you need to know for a call. So I didn't like that feeling and I mm -hmm. wanted to get away from that feeling as quickly as possible. So after every call, you review the pro protocols you used for that call. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the biggest thing that helped me improve what I recommend other people to do. Did that help you understand the medicine and do patient care too? Um, probably more on the medicine. Patient care, I don't think it's really been a struggle for me. Um, oh, you're a people person. <laughs> it's just one of my highlights. I may be very quiet, but I'm really good one-on-one. -on -one. I believe it. <laughs> <laughs> so, with your experience in EMS, what are some ways that you decompress afterwards or kind of relax after a stressful day here at work? Sure. Well, I have an hour drive home, so that kind of helps with that. Mm -hmm. um, I usually choose music or podcasts that are completely unrelated to work. And just doing that for an hour, I'm usually set by the time I get home. Nice. Yeah. Do you do any hobbies or anything that keeps you away from work? Um, until I got pregnant, I played soccer all the time. My husband and I play indoor soccer year-round. Um, so that was one of my biggest hobbies. And besides that, just being outside. I know it's cliche, but I hate being indoors. Uh -huh. And so it's nice to get to go do stuff, whether it's hiking or just going to the river. Nice. Yeah. So we, our listeners here, 
we just had a new protocol rollout and I'm kind of testing to see how people are internalizing these new protocols and how they're applying it. So Maddie, for you, what are some ways that you keep on top of these protocols and study them? Well, while I was on the truck, I'd usually pick one protocol per day to go over. Oh, um, okay. I feel like if I didn't do that, I'd get really overwhelmed and discouraged because there'd be so much that I could be learning. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you try to do too many protocols in one day, it just doesn't stick. So to keep it from being overwhelming, I just picked one protocol a day, whether that be medicine or a procedure. And I just looked at that multiple times during that shift. And the next shift would be a new protocol. Now, did you ever review a protocol and then immediately get a call that was exactly that? I don't know if I ever got that lucky, <laughs> but that would be pretty cool. <laughs> that was my running joke with all the people that I would train is we'd go over trauma criteria or something and then bing goes the call and it's a trauma. <laughs> That's some good timing. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much for coming in. I really appreciate it. And you give a really fresh perspective to emergency medicine. Of course. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Hello, everyone. With our ongoing segment of health and wellness this month, I would like to have a conversation about burnout. Now, over the months, we have talked about mental health and good habits like eating healthy and exercise. To be honest, it's all kind of poster board stuff. It's important, but it's basic. If you listen to Bianca's amazing death and dying segment last month, she targeted a subject that is one of the things that dwell on EMT or paramedic minds and that can cause actual damage. Things that we push through in the moment and make it through, but as time goes on, it can start to wear and tear. What I'd like to bring forth in this segment is something that can actually resonate with you and that you can ponder on for yourself. I know this is a training podcast and I should be bringing you statistics, research, or data on this, but today's piece I want to be much more of an inward look on your own EMS career. So why did you get into EMS? What drew you into wanting to make all the sacrifices that EMS personnel make? Is it the love for helping people in need? For being a community hero? Or maybe the love for the medicine? For whatever reason, It was enough to make you want to put in the work and get that schooling done. But on some level, the job description is not the most flattering or attractive. So let's be real with these sacrifices. You put in that extra work to work holidays and weekends, get the occasional blood and vomit all over you, and the countless hours of being mandatory held over and the late calls. It's a large burden, but for some weird reason, we stick with it. We come into it bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, wanting that cardiac arrest or car crash. The hours of training we prepared ourselves to respond and help someone in need is everything we love about this job. And it outweighs all of those late calls, all of those holiday shifts, and time away from family and friends. It's what makes us that special breed of person. But then it happens. After a while, all this excitement starts to fall away and that call that once would have made us jump out of our seat and run now just becomes routine and sometimes irritating. 
You memorize the frequent flyer addresses and all the homeless camps and shelters you have in your community. You begin to lose that flame. You may say a little salty. Well, why is that? These can be signs of burnout, and it's not our fault. Burnout not only affects us, but it also affects our partners, family, and even our patients, if neglected. The consistent exposure to trauma, and not only the big trauma, but the little ones, the 3 a.m. toe pains, the lower back pain onset 30 years ago, those are the things that sort of add weight to whatever's going on with us. Everyone knows the big calls affect us in the moment and the calls that we need to take a break and process in a healthy way. But do we do the same thing to those 1,000 little minor calls that we go on? Let's take a frequent flyer call into perspective. Your patient is calling 911 for the ninth time this week. It is always for the same chest pain he or she has had for the last four years. Every time, it's not a STEMI, it's always nothing. So that tone drops. You hear that address and you think to yourself, this better not be him or her. It's an immediate buzzkill to your night, right? You show up and it's the same old story, the same old complaint, the same old everything. You already know how this call is going to go down before it even happens. Well, the frequent flyer calls are the ones that are actually most likely to have legal action taken against us. They know how and who treats them right, sometimes by name. They know what they need as far as their treatment most of the time. So, back to the scenario, you get that call, you show up, and that patient gets treated differently than the rest of the times that they have been transported. You already know this is not a heart attack, so you neglect a 12 lead. Because the last seven times you've been on this patient, you've done a 12 lead and it's been nothing. So why not just hold off until they get to the hospital so they can give him or her that same diagnosis that they had a couple days prior when they were in the hospital last. Now, Say that patient cried wolf one too many times and that in that particular moment, they really have that heart attack. Now, how are you going to explain that to your medical director or in a court of law? Things like this is called compassion fatigue or empathy burnout. We get exhausted. We travel down the path of least resistance. We start to pre-diagnose without doing much intervention to our patients because it's easier and it's not quote-unquote emergent or life-threatening and do you know if this is even happening to you or is this just sort of a standard practice because you've been in the field for so long like I said before burnout can present different in everybody this can start affecting how we treat our patients but even worse, it can start to affect of how we treat our family and our partners. We can start to become irritable, closed off, or difficult to be around, and we don't even know that we're doing it. We can start to switch focus on what we do outside of work. You can start prioritizing numbing activities over family and friend time. Numbing activities can include a bunch of things. They distract us or pull us out of our own little headspace. 
they pull us away from reality for that few hours that it takes for us to do it wherever we're doing. These consist of things like binge watching Netflix, video games, or drinking alcohol. Now, none of these are necessarily bad for us. In most cases, it's a healthy and good way to unwind and break away from reality. But I'm talking about when it starts to become essential, when it starts to become prioritized over other things in your life. I'm talking about where it becomes the only thing you look forward to after you punch out from work. A perfect example, it's your Friday. You get a few drinks with friends to unwind and relax. Perfectly normal and healthy and fun. Two or three weeks go by like this, and now you're starting to drink even though no one goes with you to the bars. Still, pretty okay and totally fine. But then the next thing you know, that's all you start to do, is that you work, you get off, and you go and you drink. See how something like this can easily become toxic for us. Same goes with things such as overtime. You really need the money. You got bills to pay. Then on your days off, you got to rest. You sleep your whole day off and you neglect basic needs. And now, since you've been working for so long and it's now a habit, you no longer start to get invited to things such as going out with friends or family events because probably you're working or sleeping, one of those two. We need to be aware of ourselves and our limit and that limit that we can burden onto others by these sort of neglectful, numbing activities. We need to understand that sometimes we need to say no to that either overtime or, you know, going out with friends. This can also fall in line with our supervisors and our FTOs. For example, if I'm training a brand new ambitious EMT, and I give that impression of a salty, burnt-out EMT, and I start to treat patients wrongly, or not even wrongly, but withholding treatment or saying, ah, they're fine. What kind of impression is that going to leave on someone who's just starting out? That's going to set them in a path that's going to lead them to failure at some point. They're going to pass FTAP, and then they're going to get their first actual patient and go, I learned this in my FTO ride-alongs that, eh, they're fine. Or if it's even a, that frequent flyer that, eh, we've been on him before, they're fine. And then it ends up not being fine. That's something that we need to take into account. And this can also boil down to being a good partner. It's our responsibility as a good partner to look out for our coworker. You spend the same amount of time together on the ambulance, and if you can start to feel that burnout, guaranteed your partner does too. I've been pretty fortunate enough in my own life to have the same partner for a long time, and you can bet that she always calls me out on my bad attitude. So now we know what to look for with burnout. We know that things like exercise, healthy eating, and structured schedules can help us maintain good habits and healthy living. But a big thing with burnout is that this is, a, is mental exhaustion. It's the point that we actually forget that we enjoy our jobs. The consistent exposure to trauma just piles up and up into our brains. 
So what are we doing about this mental trauma? The answer to that, I feel, is therapy of some kind. There are many avenues of therapy you can venture down, but for me personally, the kind that I've found for myself is talking with my coworkers. And yes, that's considered a therapy. Venting to people who have felt the same way that I feel, I feel is a huge benefit. Talking to someone for me personally who has never been in EMS, I don't feel can understand to that same level of what I'm feeling. But that's okay. And this is my sort of personal avenue that I've worked best for me. Now here at Falk Salem, we also have a peer support group. This is a group of wonderful people that are here just for us. They are our peers. They understand what we go through on a day-to-day -day basis, and they've offered their time and their schedule any day, any time to talk with someone who absolutely needs to be talked to. And to go a step further, um, here at Falk Salem, we also are gifted 10 free actual therapy sessions with a licensed therapist before we even have to go into like insurance costs or anything like that. It's 10 free and I can't even begin to tell you how beneficial this can be. And just to paint it further, like have you ever heard of a person not you know, getting something positive out of therapy? I can tell you as I was researching this topic, I even just typed into YouTube, you know, PTSD and first responders and just hundreds and hundreds of videos and stories of fellow EMTs and medics or fire or anyone else who sort of deals with the same dealings that we deal with on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, telling their stories, doing a TED talk, telling telling us how they sought help for themselves and how it literally saved them. It's a wonderful and powerful thing that I don't feel gets enough credit. As we sort of punch into this first responder men mental health sort of crisis that you know we suffer mentally with the day-to-day -day things we deal with and that it's okay to be not okay, Therapy, I feel like, is goes right in hand with that. Like, we need to be talking about, you know, the things that we feel and to people who can hear us out and listen and give us advice or, you know, if it starts to get to, you know, depression or anxiety issues, they, they can, you know, prescribe us things to help us in our life and deal with the issues that we're going on. So, in conclusion with this, first things first, always remember your role in your personal life and in your work life. You are a paramedic or EMT because why? Answer that question to yourself. Your best self is your true self. Remember your passion and second, structure, build your daily schedules, make time for yourself, make time for your hobbies, and make time for your decompression ritual whatever that is if that's going out with friends getting drinks if it's meditation if it's yoga if it's video games structure that out so you're not wasting well, i shouldn't say wasting you're not using all of your time doing those things you know make time in your schedule for friends and family and for yourself i know this can be hard 
and especially if you have other jobs or responsibilities, but do your best. And lastly, know your support net. You have people who are proud of you and who want to help you succeed any way they can. And this can be anybody. This can be friends, family, you know, church leaders, you know, gym bros, anybody who can help you. Uh, seek that help. EMS is a nonstop world and we need to know when to say no and recognize yourself getting pushed to that edge. Take a day off, reset yourself, and then come back and be the best and most amazing provider that I know you can be. Thanks for listening and have a safe shift. And welcome for this month's installment on pediatrics. This month, I would like to focus on pediatric trauma, and I'd like to discuss a few of the nuances of pediatric trauma and how it affects us in the pre-hospital system. Something immediately to bring up about this and something that I'd like to talk about a bit more is looking at trauma systems and trying to kind of wrap our head around pediatric trauma systems and pediatric trauma centers versus like the local trauma center and what does that kind of look like you know we know that kids exist in every location that we exist um, as adults and which means that they may be in an urban setting they may be in a rural setting um, they may be in like a backcountry wilderness sort of a setting um, in any of these cases kids can get hurt and we know that our response to those kids is going to be very determined by the type of injury, the type of resources that they're going to need. Um, and we still have that crunch time to get them to a trauma center and get them to resources. So a lot of those things are the same when we talk about adults and kids, you know, and this is you know, a really important point to make when we get that child to a trauma center. However, the trauma center may not be as equipped to handle a pediatric patient um, as they do adult trauma. You know, kids require specialist care and not every hospital has access to the right size equipment in the volumes that are needed or uh, or the right specialist to deal with a very specific type of an injury. And that includes level one and level two trauma centers. Now, a lot of trauma centers have agreements with um, pediatric specialty centers to be the on-call consultant, um, where the on-duty physician after recognizing certain patterns of an injury or an illness, will uh, reach out to those specialists at their home facility and talk to them about you know, what they're seeing and how they're seeing it. But imagine, however, you're in an area that you know, the local trauma center is much farther away and you're going to like a level three trauma center. And perhaps the staff there you know, even though they've done some residency with the pediatrics and they've got some experience in the area, it's not their forte. And not only that, but think about your ambulance. Think about when we do rig checks on our ambulances and we start checking off equipment located in different areas. 
I mean, honestly, how often are we breaking out the pediatric papoose? How often are we um, looking at our pacifier that also has the nebulizer attachment to it that allows us to deliver you know, a nebulizer treatment to a infant? How often are we breaking out the portable child seat? How often are we practicing starting extremely delicate IVs in mannequins to prepare for that infant that might need an IV? How often are we pulling out the 24 gauges or the 22 gauges? And you know, thinking about when it's time to start that clutch IV in that moment. You know, maybe we're reliant really on our IOs. That's gonna be our crash plan. But are we ready to put in a conscious IO into a child? Are we gonna wait for that child to be unconscious? You know, these are all things that we think about them, but we don't think about them as often perhaps as we should. We're not alone with that. Emergency rooms are busy places. And um, especially with patient load and certification load and trying to be as good at geriatric medicine as we can be and as good at you know, heart attacks and strokes as we can be and looking at um, getting patients to the cath lab as quick as we can and recognizing these major things, other small skills start to fall through the cracks. Maybe those skills had to do a little bit more with the nuances of recognizing pediatric trauma. You know, and that's something that everybody faces. The CDC has some pretty interesting statistics on there. Um, you know, approximately 80% of U.S. children live within 50 miles of a level one or a level two trauma center. However, in many less populated areas, the percentage of children living within 50 miles of a trauma center is much, much lower. And there's an estimated 17.4 million children that do not have access to a pediatric trauma center within an hour of their location. And that should start to ring some bells in the backs of our minds here. That golden hour, right? We talked about it in school, we drilled on it in school, that we wanna get trauma patients seen as quickly as we can. But now we're talking about sometimes patients don't live close to a trauma center. That means the patient probably lives close to a clinic or maybe a freestanding ER or maybe some level of higher care. But in some cases, it might actually be that EMS is that agency that is giving them access to get them to local care. That might mean that we start recognizing a critically injured patient and we need to strongly consider perhaps flying that patient. Now this doesn't work in every environment. Downtown in the middle of the city of Salem, for instance, we're probably not gonna land a bird and fly a kid out. In fact, we're really fortunate to be in the area right around Salem Hospital. And Salem Hospital does have a PICU, P-I-C-U, or a Pediatric Intensive Care Unit. And that PICU does have access to uh, specialty resources, pediatricians, um, internalists and hospitalists that specialize in pediatric internal medicine. And they are a trauma center. They've got surgeons, talented surgeons on duty there, but they're not as uh, focused on pediatric trauma as perhaps the regional pediatric center might be, like up at OHSU at Dornbecker's. However, Salem does have a, a 
agreement with Dornbeckers that they can consult with them and they can immediately get an idea about what needs to be done to stabilize a patient like this. So those sorts of resources exist, at least in our area. We can take a child to the ER, that uh, child will receive some immediate care, and then um, that child will start receiving specialty care, and then most likely that child will need to be transferred out to an area for, for that specialist, or perhaps the specialist needs to come to Salem to kind of treat them. That might mean a ground resource, that might mean an air resource, but once again, we're thinking about that, that time frame here. Whatever the injury process was with this child has occurred, and now the side effects of that injury are still happening here. So when we think about trauma centers, and we think about regional pediatric trauma centers, we think about specialty centers that are geographically located in a central location, you know, and now we start thinking about our transport choices. Getting a child to a doctor is absolutely imperative when it comes to considering where do we transport to. More importantly, getting that pediatric child to a trauma center, especially a rated trauma center, is even more important. Um, when we're starting to put those things together, we recognize the child is injured, the child needs an evaluation, they might need specialized care or specialized training. This is why those you know, sort of systems uh, exist. If you're not from the Oregon area and you're considering your own system, I highly encourage you to start digging in a little bit more into your trauma system guidelines. Find out where your regional pediatric trauma center is. Find out what their designation is. Find out what, the, what are the capabilities of your home hospital's PICU or your PICU. And start having the conversations now about if you're facing a pediatric trauma, what's gonna be our best destination? And it's not always gonna be a super black and white sort of an answer. Might, your transport decision might be 10 minutes to the closest ER and 20 minutes to that pediatric specialty center. Maybe it's just a better idea to go to that specialty center. However, especially like if you're starting to consider what your trauma guidelines look like, it might also mean that you need to transport to the closest trauma center and you need to give them as much notification as possible so that perhaps another transfer resource can be activated or perhaps there can be some guidance or guidelines there. So let's talk a little, a little bit more here. Like when we're starting to talk about like um, uh, pediatric patients, you know, why is it that when we look at pediatric patients in the trauma setting here, you know, what are like the hangups? Why aren't we as familiar uh, with these things? Or why aren't we catching uh, injuries with kids um, maybe as often as we should? You know, and there's a couple of things there that have been identified that kind of stand in the way. So think about some of these things. Um, you know, a pre-hospital provider, you know, may not be as familiar with that pediatric emergency um, as we would for adults. Because, I mean, honestly, when we think about it, we don't get as invasively... Um, diagnostic with kids, you know, as we do with adults. Consider um, radiation. Um, a child who has their entire lifetime in front of them, you know, and now we are potentially asking for like a CT scan of that child to just just look for the injury, right? Well, that CT scan is radiation. It's something along the lines of like 140 x-rays or 140 doses 
of x-rays, right? Not just a simple one x-ray film, you know, where they shoot it through the front of the chest and through the side of the chest. Each one of those has their own risks, but it's a low dose, maybe a tolerable dose, right? When we start considering a CT or like a CT of the head to look for closed head injuries here, that's a ton of radiation to be putting through a kid. We know that radiation is a carcinogen. We know that it, that it enough radiation has side effects and irradiating children absolutely needs to be done in a very judicious manner. Just because the kid bonked their head, we have to try to figure out, is it now the right time to pump x-rays through that kid's head just to potentially find a normal looking CT? A lot of times physicians will rely on clinical judgment, clinical presentation, the story about how the fall happened, what did the child look like afterwards, signs and symptoms of a concussion, and weigh all of those risk benefits with the patient's uh, care providers, the parents, about the risk benefit of potentially irradiating that child and looking for that injury. You know, maybe that uh, it's the right time to do it. Does a child even tolerate a CT? Right? So some things like that might make it very difficult to find that injury. And once again, with clinical medicine, you know, we're relying on signs and symptoms. We're also relying on that child to be able to perhaps report some of those symptoms to us. Headaches, dizziness, nausea, vomiting. But the younger they get, the more likely those symptoms um, are a little bit more gray to determine with those people. Consider what a trauma system looks like then as patients start arriving into their ER. They're triaged into different ways and in different categories. Some of them arriving by ambulance, some of them arriving by personal vehicle. Which brings us to another one of the confounders when it comes to identifying pediatric trauma. As they arrive at a hospital, we kind of get this idea that, you know, kids are portable and a parent may bypass EMS and elect to take a child in a vehicle and you know take them you know, perhaps to um, the hospital on their own. Maybe they've gone to an urgent care. Maybe they've gone to their primary care physician or their pediatrician. And in some cases, there's a delay of identification um, after all of that. In some cases, we get to the scene right, af right after the accident has occurred. And uh, while we're evaluating that patient and while we're trying to get the story straight or as the patient arrives there in the ER and everybody's trying to like unravel uh, the story that's behind there, the patient oftentimes has a hard time communicating what happened in that call or what happened in that incident that's there. And uh, sometimes they can get lost in um, kind of the motions of how everything happens. We ask complicated questions or we ask personal questions that maybe they're not ready to, to deal with. In some cases, um, we ask you know, about uncomfortable things that they don't want to express or talk about in front of family members when we're talking about young teens um, or adolescents. Um, maybe the parent as well also might be a confounder in this, where the parent's own interpretation of what happened there maybe takes us down the wrong avenue or uh, there's a, a piece or a detail there that we're missing. What it really comes down to then is once we've identified a, a potential patient that has a potential traumatic injury, getting the whole story is huge. 
but getting the whole story to every provider is also huge. Once that patient arrives in the hospital, that's one link in that chain, right? But if you've been gathering information and getting it all together all at once, your handoff report of this patient becomes critical. And making sure that the hospital knows some of those uh, critical things that you've seen, that may be the triggering moment that speeds up this patient's care. This could be the call-in report to the hospital. This could be um, perhaps notifying the physician if you're able to, um, if the physician is bedside, being able to um, express the story and the concerns that you had for this patient uh, that you might have detected during your evaluations. That's gonna get the ball rolling faster for these patients. But overall, when we start considering trauma systems, these are some of the things that delay identification of uh, injuries. Uh, for patients. Just think about how then we start managing some of these patients. A patient that receives fluid or a patient that receives blood is a bit different when it comes to giving that to a child or giving that to an adult. Let's say I'm with a patient and I have an IV running and that IV is delivering fluid. If I get busy doing other things and a saline bag happens to drip into an adult patient, odds are that adult patient's probably gonna do okay. Now there's some outliers out there that are a bit more arguable, but as an adult, our ability to deal with fluid shifts is much you know, better than that of a child. But fluid overloading a child becomes a lot more easy to do if we happen to let an IV run or if we happen to not manage our fluids in the right way. Even just looking at the, um, amount of salts that are inside of that fluid can be critical um, because remember that you know these kids they don't have the same volume that adults do just because we put in a lot more volume doesn't necessarily mean that we're balancing out their electrolytes in the same way that an adult should so those sorts of considerations need to be there and need to be carefully considered when we're talking about ongoing treatment of a patient you know lastly when we start thinking about the difference really between you know, how we're handling things in the field and how we're handling things in the hospital. Most often when we start seeing sick kids, um, our first instinct is to pick up that kid, scoop and run, get them to the hospital as quick as we can in order to get them to definitive medical care. And there's this thought, especially in EMS, that we scoop up a kid, we transport them quickly, we get to the hospital, slide them off under the ER bed, we're hands off, handoff report is done and the team is starting to do their work. In, a, in some cases, getting that patient there as quickly as possible is absolutely a life-saving measure. But we also need to balance that with making sure that that team is ready to pick up right where we left off. If we're gonna do a scoop and run, we need to have a resource with us. We need to have information with us so that we can communicate the need and the urgency to the facility. We need to give them as much time for them to activate any specialists or any specialty resources that they may need to get out of that cabinet that where it's been stored or get somebody a chance to start thinking about pediatric methodology or talking to a specialist or free up the physician that has the most experience uh, dealing perhaps with this type of injury or this type of illness and get those resources activated. Just because they end up on a table inside of the hospital, there's still a spin-up time of getting things moving and getting things ready. Now, everybody's going to be 
you know, pushing hard to try to save a lot because this kid, I mean, those are the calls that really hit us hardest at home sometimes, you know, this kid has their whole life ahead of them and we're going to do absolutely everything that we can to try to, you know, save as much of that life and preserve that life as much as we can. Doing that in as calm and a direct and an efficient manner is key to keeping everything level-headed, to keep everything nice and straightforward so that the team can move more effectively. There's that maybe semi-cliche phrase that's out there that slow is smooth and smooth is fast. That is absolutely true in these cases. Remember that your brain is going to be going through some level of time dilation where it feels like the world is just flying past you uh, right now and you're moving as quickly as you can. And if you ever took a couple of breaths and slowed things down, it feels like the world is just moving at a snail's pace. That's just your adrenaline speaking for you. Those are your adrenaline goggles that you're wearing. And that's actually okay. If you feel like you're moving slow, you're probably actually moving about normal speed. Take a little time to organize your thoughts. Give your big room report. You know, this is our patient. These are the major concerns. This is what we've done so far. Get the team rolling, you know, and get those things going. Now we've talked a little bit more about hospital interface and how important it is to um, make sure that we're identifying wounds, we're identifying the uh, injury, that we're getting all of our resources in one spot. Um, We are trying to get the story as clear as we can. That's going to help the specialists make the choices on intubation. Um, imaging studies on that child, pain control on that child, um, looking at the potentials for injury for that child and balancing that with what's the goal for ongoing care? Is it going to be surgery? Is it not? Is it going to be analgesia and kind of watch the progression of what's going on here? And we also have to balance that with vital signs. We have to balance that with progression. And we also have to balance that with the fact that kids decompensate differently than adults. So that's the next uh, phase of this that I'd like to talk about here. Let's talk about pediatric vital signs and trauma. In general, vital signs can kind of be summarized by saying that the heart rate, the respiratory rate um, of this child, it's obviously going to be higher than that of an adult. And the blood pressure is going to be far lower than that of an adult. So for a child age one to 10 years, we're gonna calculate that by taking 70 plus two times the age in years. So let's take a look at an example of that. Let's take a 10-year-old child here. And that 10-year-old child's uh, average blood pressure here, 70 plus 20, is a systolic reading of somewhere in that 90 range, right? And that child here who's 10 years old who has this blood pressure of 90 um, suddenly has a problem with blood loss and we start thinking about how much blood loss you know is going to be a problem for this you know child here so you know this patient who loses um, up to 15 percent of their blood volume can still have a normal pulse rate They can still have a normal blood pressure or maybe even a little bit of an increased blood pressure. They might still have normal capillary refill. They might still have normal respiratory rates. They might just look slightly anxious. Um, This is uh, how well that kids can kind of um, uh, compensate with this sort of a thing. So that 
first blood pressure on your 10 year old who's had some blood loss here or maybe has, you know, a belly bleed and they've lost up to 15 percent of their blood volume. If that 10 year old perhaps weighs about 70 pounds on average, you know, their overall blood volume is about two and a quarter liter bags of blood. So two and a quarter of those thousand cc uh, bags that we hang and drip into people. Two and one quarter of those. Now, if this patient has lost 15% of that, that would be right around 300 cc's of blood. Now, if we're thinking about that, that's one third of those saline bags that we hang if a patient has lost 15% of their blood volume, that's one third of that bag. Now these vital signs may start to change with the more blood loss that starts to occur. At 15 to 30%, so that's we've lost 300 cc's, now all the way up to 600 cc's, we might start to see some mild tachycardia, right? But remember kids already have a little bit of a faster heart rate. Um, here for what we're going to see. So what does that look like in our 10-year-old? Well, kids at 10 years old, that's usually when we start to see their heart rates come down to that 60 to 100 beats per minute. So that's already a good benchmark to kind of put in the back of your mind. So now what does mild tachycardia kind of look like to you uh, when we're discussing that, right? So mild tachycardia, maybe 100 beats, maybe 110, maybe 120 beats per minute. Their blood pressure can be normal or just slightly decreased with what we're seeing there. And that's for that 300 to 600 range here. However, this is where we start to see some other signs start to come in that suggests that this person has um, really entered into the compensatory mechanisms and has some significant blood loss. Um, uh, the capillary refill, look towards the fingers, look towards the toes, blanch them out, take a look. As the body starts to shunt blood back to the core, it's going to sacrifice the extremities um, in order to get blood back to the core. So you're going to have um, a decreased capillary refill in the extremities. You're going to probably have this child now who has some tachypnea, and they're definitely going to be looking um, anxious at this particular point. Their body is telling them fight or flight. Their body is telling them I'm in trouble, I'm compensating. This is going to be the child who is going to look scared. It's going to be looking for mom and dad who is going to be um, uh, expressing the fact that they don't feel good, that despite whatever is going on, despite reassurance, that kid is probably going to be trying to give everybody the sign that they're decompensating um, and almost intuitively sometimes uh, parents can recognize that, that in the child and help to alert uh, EMS about that. Um, as we start to move even farther down this decompensation cycle, at 30 to 40 percent of that blood of that blood volume, right? So this is between 600 to 900 uh, milliliters of blood. Okay, so we still haven't even got to a full liter bag of blood loss yet in this kiddo here. Um, you know, this level of hemorrhagic shock in a child is considered. Um, very, very dangerous. They're going to have moderate tachycardia. 
you're going to have finally the decreased blood pressure. Um, that's going to be that hypotensive child. You're definitely going to have that uh, capillary refill delay. Um, that patient is going to be even more short of breath, um, even more just trying to oxygenate whatever they have left. Um, remember that kids are oxygen-based creatures, and we've removed their ability to oxygen transport here by removing, you know, almost half of their blood volume here, at least a third up to a half of that blood volume. And this patient is probably confused. They're probably no longer responding normally, or they are beyond anxious. That kid has now reached the point of fight or flight, and the uh, mental status drop is going to be very apparent at that point. But we've already kind of gone off the slippery edge. Now they're decompensating. This kid has tried to compensate for as long as possible up to that 30 to 40% range of blood loss, and now they're falling off the deep end, right? That patient you know, is super sick and needed our attention a couple of steps before. Um, anything higher than that, greater than 40% blood loss, so this is 900 cc's and above, right? Severe tachycardia. Kids are going to try to compensate by just moving the pump as fast as it can go. But remember that just by beating quickly doesn't always generate a nice good blood pressure. Sometimes that heart starts to cavitate. That heart just can't fill up enough in order to be able to eject it back out. So you're going to have a really, really bad blood pressure at this point, despite the severe tachycardia. And then all of the other things that we've been talking about here, next to no capillary refill, uh, severe tachypnea and respiratory distress bordering on just collapse here, confused, lethargic sorts of uh, behaviors here. Um, this patient now has reached that point of, you know, just they've gone off the deep end entirely. So think about what we're seeing on this child when we arrive. You know, what does that patient look like? Remember what we were talking about the last podcast. We were talking about the pediatric assessment triangle. We were talking about looking at a patient and trying to use that PAT to determine sick or not sick right off the bat. Take a moment here to think about what does that look like? What were the three pieces of the pediatric triangle? We'll take a few seconds here to let everybody think about that a sec. So a quick review, remember that the pediatric assessment triangle, it looks at the patient's appearance. What does their tone look like? What does their interactiveness look like? What's their consolability look like? Are they looking at EMS? Do they have a gaze? Are they just like laying there? Um, what does their speech or their cry look like? Is it weak? Um, is it strong? Um, then we're going to look at the next leg of this table. What's their work of breathing look like? Is it hard? Is it fast? Are they really working to get air in? Do they have retractions or flaring? Are they gasping for air? Think about what we've just been talking about here with trauma. We're talking about um, what is the activity level? What is the mental status of that patient? What's the consolability? Are they anxious or not? And we're looking then at their work of breathing. Are they mildly tachypnic? Or are they, are they really starting to work to breathe? A kid who has heavy work of breathing, who looks pretty lethargic, we need to be really concerned you know, in the presence of trauma that this patient has already gone over decompensation. The third level of that uh, pediatric assessment triangle was the circulation to the skin. Poor pallor, right? 
paleness, cyanosis. Um, we're looking at that capillary bed refill. Does the patient have modeling on their skin, right? We start looking at that and right as we're walking in the door, sick or not sick, you know, start thinking about what should this patient really look like? A kid who is red and hot to the touch, who is crying and holding mom and scared of EMS arriving, they may be working hard to breathe because they are, you know, crying at this time, but the other two legs of that table, they look pretty normal at that time. Eventually, we need to start getting some vital signs. So if we think back to our previous discussions on pediatrics, we start thinking about good tools to have in the toolbox, your stethoscope becomes exceptionally important. Use the stethoscope to listen to the lungs. Listen to the heart if you can. Try to listen to what does that pulse rate feel like? What does that look like, right? A lot of times I see folks immediately go for the pulse oximeter. Bring the scary monitor over here and let's put a sticker on their toe or whatever. It's a good diagnostic tool. It gives us some information, that's for sure, right? But the PAT also gives us information. And probably the most important piece of equipment that we are bringing onto a scene is the paramedic and EMT. It's those individuals who have studied things, looked at things, looked at pictures, done case reviews, looked at stuff uh, like this podcast, listened to this podcast, and thought about what does a sick kid look like and how am I going to be prepared to transport that child. So once again, when we're starting to look at trauma and we're thinking about this, we're thinking about um, my vital signs, how unstable or stable is this kid? How am I going to collect these vital signs over a period of time? What is our strategy? Are we going to have the parent involved or do we need to put that kid in a place and be ready to work on that kid, even though it might be a bit uncomfortable, but get that patient with the right providers, with lots of hands to be able to help and prepare things and get things ready to go and be ready for any sort of a sign of decompensation. You know, let's have a quick discussion then about when is the right time to start an IV in a child. Think back to some of the things that we've been discussing now about those vital signs. You know, that blood volume loss up to 15%, we have a patient that may only be mildly anxious, um, but may otherwise look pretty stable and pretty normal, right? That patient right there However, when we start thinking about the mechanism of injury and what's going to happen from this point on, if that patient starts to decompensate, are we already behind the eight ball on this? Are we already set up for failure? Think about how hard it's going to be to get an IV in a child um, or an IO in a child um, as that patient starts to decompensate. You know, there is a lot to be said about using our bedside manner and you know, talking to folks about the importance of starting an IV and getting that IV in place and having it ready to go. And, you know, these are doable and manageable things. You know, obviously we need to take into consideration the child's anxiety level, the parent's anxiety level, her own anxiety level in all of this. But with a calm, steady bedside manner, with multiple rescuers um, being in, uh, involved with patient care, but having one lead um, rescuer who's doing nothing but just communicating with the child and letting them know, you know, what's going on and helping to kind of 
distract them or reason with them or talk to them or get them plugged in on their own care and being that person's advocate if they don't already have one there, that may be that turning point of being able to get us an IV and get us the uh, leverage that we need to um, get the access to you know, help support this patient's condition. Other things that go hand in hand with this that you know, are relatively obvious but definitely need to be said, controlling external bleeding means 10 times more than it does to an adult than it does to a child here, right? We need to stop every drop of precious blood from leaving this child and recognize that direct external pressure is key. It's huge. We absolutely need to maintain direct pressure on wounds because every drop that we're losing here is one more step closer towards decompensation. And we don't know truly how much blood loss we've had. EMS does a really bad job of estimating the amount of blood loss. For a good example, just take a known volume and dump it out on the floor. You'll be surprised at how little fluid you need to put on the floor to make it look like a big mess. But then for comparison, put a large amount of fluid on the floor and get a good idea about what 250 cc's looks like. What does 500 cc's look like? What does 1,000 cc's look like? Granted, when you're doing this at home, uh, probably don't put it on your floor. Uh, significant other, roommate, you know, somebody like that might not appreciate all of that fluid going all over the place, but uh, I digress just a little bit. Um, when we're starting again now to think about other things that are super important with this patient, when we're thinking about shock, when we're thinking about this patient with fluid loss, when we're thinking about this patient who now we've started to do uh, blood uh, loss control, the next thing that we start, need to start thinking about is temperature management with kids, right? If we're stopping the bleeding and you know, also you know, maybe working with the airway, if we're managing those sorts of things with this kid, think about warming them up. Keep them warm. Uh, people who get cold during traumatic events, that significantly impacts their survival rates. It significantly impacts um, uh, how that child is going to continue to compensate or decompensate here. And kids have uh, a much more difficult time maintaining their temperature than adults do. This is a child that we need the heat on in the back and it's going to be uncomfortable and you're going to sweat and you're going to, you're really going to be working hard, but that kid needs a warm environment. They're going to need blankets. They might need some hot packs. They might need something that's going to help them to try to stay warm as much as we can while we're doing all of these other things, while we're managing the trauma. So I want you to start correlating in your head, a cold injured child is a dangerous combination. I want you to think about actively trying to keep them warm and stave off that just a bit more. That's absolutely something that we can do in the moment as providers to help improve outcomes. Going back and again, reaffirming this whole thing about IV access, think about what we're looking at. In a patient who is compensating, who we think is bleeding, who we think has like blood loss here, we need to get IV access. Now, the most common types of peripheral access catheters, right, for newborns and for young uh, uh, children and infants, 22 to 24 gauges will absolutely give us something, right? And 18s and 20 gauges um, for older kids will absolutely get us more. But 
we're not going to be able to get that in a young in a young kiddo. So a 22 or a 24 gauge catheter, that's what we're looking at here. And the arms can absolutely be some place to look, but don't forget to look at the legs. Don't forget to look at the feet. There might be something there. In um, even younger than that, um, or the the super young, it is possible to start scalp veins and to do things like that too. But remember what we were talking about at the start of this particular lecture. When was the last time we practiced that? When was the last time we practiced starting a clutch IV like that in a situation where your heart's thumping and things are tense and things are, are difficult, right? This takes a special skill of quieting your mind, forgetting the rest of the environment there for a minute and just focusing on your procedures, focusing on what you need to do in that clutch moment because slow is smooth and smooth is fast. I highly recommend that if you haven't done anything like this, um, uh, here's a good drill that you can potentially do. Now, talk to your supply, talk to your ops, talk to people like that before you go and do this. Don't consider this carte blanche to go ahead and grab the equipment and start doing this on your own. But if you can get a hold of it, a nasal cannula, especially a pediatric nasal cannula, if you think about the tubing that goes up and over the ears and around to the nose, um, instead of like the main feeder oxygen tubing, right? I'm talking about the little tubes that go up and over the ears that lead to eventually the ends of the nose. Those are great lumens to practice 22 and 24 gauge IVs on, especially when you take um, a little bit of like plastic tape and you put that lumen down with some plastic tape on top of it to uh, pretend kind of to be the skin uh, just a bit. And you can use that as a great way of practicing these small, delicate IVs. And try putting those all around the surface of an orange or perhaps around the surface of a grapefruit um, and try inserting these lines through like cellophane um, or things like that. It's cool because once you cannulate that, you can actually push some fluid through that and it'll come out the nasal cannula if you actually have it in the right place. It's also really good because not always are you going to get a flash or a really reliable flash in these small glass-like veins. This takes a special skill to be able to try. So think about that. Now, moving back towards the IV access and these sorts of things, in the moment, we may not be able to get an IV, right? And the older the child, usually the easier the IV we should be able to get. We get back into that comfortable range of being able to start a 24 or 20, um, or excuse me, a 22 or a 20 or an 18 as we get towards that 10-year-old kiddo. Um, however, even in those kids, if they're so shut down where we can't get a reliable accessed vein, then we need to really consider the IO, right? And they are a little bit more easy to obtain because the landmarks are the same, right? Um, and we're shooting for this um, this cavity on the inside of like the tibial plateau, right? And we're shooting for that IO to be able to access the vasculature system. And other than uh, going through the technique 
of inserting that, whether you're using um, the EZIO, which is the drill, or if you're using an old school Jamshidi needle, um, or if you're using some of the new technology that's kind of coming out. Uh, I think it's uh, Sam that's coming out with something that's a hand powered drill versus relying on a battery to kind of insert that. Um, there are some benefits to being able to give an intraosseous infusion in an emergency, and you can give blood product through an IO. It just needs to be a patent IO. It usually has to go in through a pressure infuser, but we can't give it as quickly um, as we can when we start thinking about um, like IV access in comparison. Either way, when we start thinking about shock in this child, and we're gonna, now we're gonna start thinking about delivering fluid, and we want to try to address that, blood product is gonna be king. We're not gonna be able to beat blood product because it is an oxygen transporter, right? And we know that if we're going to give saline, if you've been following our podcast at all, we've talked a little bit about saline is cold, saline is acidic, saline also washes out clotting factor, and it makes that uh, patient potentially bleed even more. But it's something. It has a place. And so do like LRs, lactated ringers, right? We're talking about giving a patient perhaps 20 cc's per kilo of warm saline and or, or ringers over 10 to 15 minutes, right? We're talking about giving them a bolus up to um, a certain amount, but eventually, you know, if they're still losing blood and we haven't stopped that patient's uh, bleeding, we're losing blood. We're losing the thing that we really need, which is red blood cells, right? And clotting factor. This is why blood is king. If we are transporting a patient who we think might need fluid or we think might need blood, we need to get a line. We need to get something there so that if we can get that patient to the hospital where they have blood product, we're going to buy us time to get that patient to a specialist and get that patient to someone who could potentially stop the bleeding. This means we're going to have to come out of our comfort zone a bit and start IVs in kids and practice starting IVs and practice what that conversation looks like um, with a 10-year-old that you're attempting to talk into that sort of a, a procedure at that particular point. That sounds different than how we deal with uh, adults and how we rationalize with adults who are able to accept a procedure like that and weigh the benefits and the, um, uh, the risks of that sort of a procedure, right? This is why things get difficult with kiddos. We start thinking about how this works. There's a lot more complication to this and we need to spend more time kind of prepping for it. The last piece of pediatric trauma um, that I would really like to talk about here is airway control. Um, I am gonna do a pediatric section on burns, but it's such a large section and there's so much to be considered and we're already pushing our time on this section here. I want to end on airway control in the traumatic patient, but I want to talk about burns in a separate segment. So stay tuned for that. Let's talk a little bit about airway control in kids. It should go without saying that when we're talking about airway control, this is another thing that we are painfully lacking in training and proficiency in. Intubating and manage, uh, managing intubation of children is something that um, even doctors spend a lot of time uh, trying to learn more about because this is absolutely something that is um, very difficult and something that is um, a procedure that 
we need to drill on and that we need to uh, practice a heck of a lot more in order to become proficient with. And there's just never going to be enough practice or training to ever truly get to a point of mastery of that level of a skill. That's why it's so important when we start thinking about um, airway control is that there is no absolute single answer of saying you will always intubate or you will never intubate a child. In fact, there's a lot of basic airway management skills in kids that helps us to overcome uh, certain um, problems that are there and get us to a team where we're able to use a team to intubate a, uh, intubate a child and just buy us time to get to that point. So let's first start by talking about some of those basic airway management skills. Um, something as simple as padding under the shoulders. Talk about it a bit in PALS, but this is something that is simple as grabbing the towel that you usually have on your cot. You have it there for vomit control. You have it there for you know just having something handy to kind of wipe things up. Fold that lengthwise, flip that over and fold it hot dog now style, and now fold it again hamburger style. That's gonna give you a solid couple inches of thick padding here. We put that underneath the shoulders of this patient and it pulls that larger occipital area of the kid's head, it pulls it backwards by raising the chest up and it puts them in this sniffing position. And it's really important to remember that in the anatomy of a child as things are growing and changing, the back of the head is really big. When they're laying flat, it pushes that whole head forward and they kind of close off uh, that airway where they're breathing, right? When we pad under the shoulders and we put that airway in that neutral inline position and even a little bit more hyperextended towards that sniffing position, that aligns all of those pieces. It puts the cervical spine in a neutral position as well. And this position can remarkably improve respiratory efforts in a kid. Remember, kids are oxygen-based creatures. They're really good at breathing. And not only that, but their oxygen uh, delivery system, it's smaller, it's more minute, but it's also pretty efficient at getting things in and getting things out. Um, except for when you have things like, you know, uh, bronchiolitis or bronchitis or um, things in there that are causing some inflammation. But when we align those sorts of structures, we're gonna already be improving this patient's respiratory drive. We add to that some supplemental oxygenation, right? We add that some blow-by if they're not going to tolerate something a little bit more. We add uh, something along the lines of uh, assisted mechanical uh, ventilations with a bag valve mask. A lot of times, this is going to be enough to help us overcome some of those deficits. In a patient who is unconscious, unresponsive, putting in an OPA to help remove that oversized tongue, give us a nice, reliable channel to get in and out, actively suctioning and making sure that we're removing secretions and vomit from that patient's airway, also a really great tool to help us buy us more time to get that patient to a team who's going to help us to uh, intubate and manage that patient's airway um, much more reliably. Once we start getting down the lines a little bit more here, you know, we're talking about a child who's going to allow us to do those sorts of things. This is a late uh, this is a late sort of a, of a procedure here. Up and until that point, it might just be balancing some blow by oxygen with a uh, 
patient care provider. It might be that nasal cannula that allows us to perhaps put an end tidal cannula on them and truly watch what their respiratory rate is over and over again. And that might give you a reliable respiratory rate that might start to show us uh, compensation in a child. Don't forget your, you know, your chin lift and your jaw thrust. Don't forget that, you know, when we're talking about a kiddo and we're talking about breathing for them and we're bagging that patient, it doesn't take much of a squeeze of a uh, BVM to inflate their lungs. And hyperinflation of their lungs is very easy to do when adrenaline's kicking in our body and we're not actively thinking about what we're doing with that kid. Barotrauma is a real thing. We can overinflate stuff. So take a moment. Get your mind right. Think about what we're doing. Think about the volumes that it's going to take. Use the appropriate sized BVM. If you don't have one and you're using an oversized BVM, think about collapsing it down a couple of notches. You know how you can extend a adult BVM out to its full capacity? Drop that down a couple of notches. We don't need all of that volume in order to be able to oxygenate this kid. And as we're delivering that, it's just going to be enough to see some chest rise. That's it. That's all they need. We wash out that uh, dead space, that uh, area where we're not actually doing oxygen transfer. And then we're going to breathe for them a little bit faster. Puffs every now and then, right? And we're going to be watching that end tidal score. And we're going to be delivering that oxygen to this kid enough to keep them sustained this whole time. If we ever had to get to the point of endotracheal intubation, Remember that we have a difference between cuffed and uncuffed tubes, right? And the uncuffed tube means that this airway is going to slide down into a conical-shaped larynx, right? Something that's shaped like a cone, shaped like a descending and narrowing tube down past the vocal cords into their trachea, right? We have to be very accurate on the size of what we're going to do with that tube, a good way to think about that is to look at the size of the pinky. Compare the tube size with the size of the patient's pinky, right? That's about the size tube or a little smaller of what it is that we're going to need uh, for that kiddo. And once that tube goes in, once that tube is, is placed there below the vocal cords, managing that becomes everything. Where that head, as soon as it moves or it flexes up and down or left or right, it's so easy for that tube to fall out. It's uncuffed. It's just going to, that's a slippery conical shaped mess right there, right? Putting that tube in place and then managing where it's at from that point, that's a, almost a two rescuer job. Just reminding people that we can't move the body and move the head or move anything else and making sure that that tube is attached right at the gum line, right where that uh, centimeter mark is on the gum line. And whoever's bagging that uh, tube absolutely positively has to manage how much torque and how much pressure they're putting on that tube, keeping it from driving too low, keeping it from pulling back out. Balancing that in the back of a moving ambulance, balancing that in the back of everything, it's almost better to try all of our really good BLS skills to keep that patient in a neutral inline sniffing position, suction any secretions we find, get really good at delivering reliable BVMs, uh, breaths during that time and prepare that patient to receive an airway and only take the airway as an absolute last ditch. You had no other possible reason um, to do anything with it. It's it's absolutely something that we don't practice enough or consider enough. So 
um, hyper-cautious on those particular areas. So that covers a bit more about trauma, at least when we're talking about the critical natures of trauma and bleeding control. In later episodes, we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, burns. We're going to talk a bit more about analgesia and pain control um, when it comes to that, balancing that with even more dangers that kind of come from burns and why burns can just be devastating. But hope you found some value in this review of pediatric trauma. Um, Thank you so much for listening and have a great day. This month's medication highlight is atropine. Atropine is one of the oldest drugs in the medical pharmacopoeia. It's been used many times in history. And in today's medicine, it's used to treat bradycardia. So let's dig in a bit. Atropine was used in ancient times, not as a conotropic agent, but as a cosmetic drug. The belladonna plant, which is a source of atropine, means beautiful lady in Italian. It was known for its ability to redden cheeks and dilate pupils, which enhance beauty. Modern day fashion models are known to use the same device for visual appeal. During the time of the Roman Empire and the Middle Ages, the deadly nightshade shrub was frequently used to produce an obscure and often prolonged poisoning, prompting Linus to name the shrub Atropa belladonna, after Atropus, the oldest of the three fates, who cuts the thread of life. Oof, dramatic. Atropine is also found in Jamestown, or Jimsonweed. In India, the root leaves of Jimsonweed were burned, and the smoke inhaled was to use to treat asthma. British colonists observed this ritual and introduced the belladonna alkalosis into Western medicine in the early 1800s. Atropine extracts from the Egyptian herbane were used by Cleopatra herself in the last century BC to dilate her pupils in hopes that she would appear more alluring. In the Renaissance, women used the juice of the berries of the Atropa belladonna to enlarge their pupils in their eyes and for cosmetic reasons. This was resumed briefly in the 19th century and early 20th century in Paris. But after that, people realized that it's actually going to kill you and stopped using it for that reason. The substance was first synthesized by a German chemist named Richard Walster in 1901. Bezold and Bloom showed that atropine blocked the cardiac effects of vagal stimulation. And Hittleman found that it prevented salivary secretion produced by stimulation of the corda tampani. Atropine has also been a first-line treatment for bradycardia for hundreds of years. In modern times, it's used to agonize the effects of acetylcholine, which plays a role in regulating the sinoatrial node and the transmission of impulses in the atrioventricular node in the heart. Now, it's accepted practice to treat bradycardias with SA nodal input by providing atropine. Big change, huh? So, let's talk a little bit about acetylcholine. Acetylcholine is one of the neurotransmitters, a chemical signal, used by the central nervous system, which has many effects on the body including stimulating muscle contraction, 
inducing peristalsis or digestion, bile release by the liver, and decreasing sinoatrial node and atrioventricular node stimulation. When we get a decrease in stimulation of these nodes, we encounter its effect recorded on the EKG, seen as sinus bradycardia, SA blocks, and AV blocks. Acetylcholine is released during vagus nerve stimulation, which in the heart binds to M2 musculinic receptors, one of five types of musculinic receptors, which mainly work in the central nervous system and skeletal muscles. Out of all these receptors, binding of acetylcholine to M2 receptors affects the heart and its overall conductivity. Atropine is commonly classified as an anticholinergic or antiparasympathetic, ooh, try saying that word twice, drug. More precisely, it's termed as an anti-musculinic agent since it agonizes the musculin-like actions of acetylcholine and other choline esters. So, how does this work? First, there's a decrease in cyclic adenosine monophosphate, or CAMP, intracellular space. This slows down the L-type calcium channel opening, leading to the decreased automaticity and slightly decreasing contractility. Next, the potassium leaving the cell is delayed, which prolongs repolarization and delaying the next action potential. The combination of these actions hyperpolarize the cells, increasing the SA nodal and AV nodal threshold, which decreases the overall conduction, mainly through the atrioventricular node. This is known as a negative domotropic effect. Atropine, an anticholinergic, blocks acetylcholine by binding to the M2 receptors, giving it the parasympathetic response. The goal is not to necessarily increase the sinonatrial node function, but rather to block the parasympathetic response produced by the M2 receptor stimulation, leading to the normal sinoatrial node and atrioventricular node stimulation function. Atropine inhibits the muscularinic actions of acetylcholine on structures innervated by prostaglandic cholinergic nerves and on smooth muscles, which respond to androgynous acetylcholine, but are not so innervated. As with other anti-muscularinic agents, the major action of atropine is a competitive or surmountable antagonism, which can be overcome by increasing the concentration of acetylcholine at receptor sites of the effector organ. This is done by using anticholinesterase agents, <laughs> which inhibit the enzymatic destruction of acetylcholine. The receptors agonized by atropine are the peripheral structures that are stimulated or inhibited by muscarine. The responses to prostaglandic cholinergic nerve stimulation may also be inhibited by atropine, but this occurs less readily than with responses to injected choline esters. The interesting part about atropine is that it reduces secretions in the mouth and respiratory passages. It relieves the constriction and spasm of respiratory passages, 
and it may reduce the paralysis of respiration. This is because atropine works on the central nervous system. Unfortunately, atropine is an unreliable respiratory stimulant and large and repeated doses may de depress respiration instead. Atropine-induced parasympathetic inhibition may be preceded by transient phase stimulation, especially on the heart where small doses first slow the rate before characteristic tachycardia develops due to the paralysis of the vagal control. Remember, that's the point of atropine. Although mild vagal excitation occurs, the increased respiratory rate and occasionally increased depth of respiration produced by atropine are more probably the result of the bronchodilator effect. Adequate doses of atropine stops various types of reflex vagal cardiac slowing or asystole. The drug also prevents bradycardia or asystole produced by injection of choline esters, anticholinesterin agents, or other parasympathetic drugs, and the cardiac arrest produced by stimulation of the vagus. Atropine may also lessen the degree of partial heart blocks when vagal activity is a factor. In some individuals with a complete heart block, the idioventricular rate may be accelerated by atropine, and others the rate stabilized. Occasionally, a large dose may cause atrioventricular blocks and nodal rhythms. Atropine in clinical doses counteracts the peripheral dilation an abrupt decrease in blood pressure produced by choline esters. However, when given by itself, atropine does not exert a striking or uniform effect on blood vessels or blood pressure. Systemic doses slightly raise systolic and lower diastolic pressures and can prolong significant hypotension. Such doses are slightly increase cardiac output and decrease central venous pressure. Occasionally, therapeutic doses dilate cutaneous blood vessels, particularly in the blush area, known as the atropine flush. It may cause atropine fever due to a suppression of sweat gland activity, especially in infants and in small children. So let's take a step back and talk about myocardial infarctions, one of my favorite subjects. As we've seen, in patients exhibiting a heart attack, we commonly see some version of bradycardia, also known as protective bradycardia. When atropine is given to MI patients, it will increase their heart rate and myocardial oxygen demand. So in cases of bradycardia caused by MIs, it would actually be safer to transcutaneous pace them at a rate of 60 and then move towards some sort of cardiac interventions, like a cath lab. If the patient has severe symptoms, you need to jump straight to pacing. But sometimes you can use atropine slightly um, before you can start pacing. But you always have to think about that myocardial use and the demand for oxygen, where it's already limited in an MI. In the latest 2020 AHA update, the recommended single-dose administration of atropine was increased from 0.5 milligrams to 1 milligrams. This was based on data suggesting that at low doses, atropine may cause 
paradisimal bradycardia. At low doses, atropine decreases heart rate by blocking the M1 acetylcholine receptors in the parasympathetic ganglion controlled in the SA node. At higher doses, atropine increases the heart rate by blocking M2 acetylcholine receptors on the myocardia itself. Atropine-induced bradycardia may be especially difficult to manage in patients who are morbidly obese or post-cardiac transplantation. According to AHA, the current dose of atropine is 1 mg IV every 3 minutes to a max of 3 mg. However, in cholinergic poisoning, you may require a higher dose, which is usually the doubling method, which is 1 mg, then 2 mg, then 4 mg, 8 mg, and so on. Pretty much you empty your reserves of atropine. An important note is that cardiac transplant patients have a paradoxical worsening of bradycardia with atropine. Because of this, atropine should generally be avoided in cardiac transplant patients. Most sick bradycardia patients will not respond to atropine, so it's important to move quickly to chronotropic drugs such as epinephrine if atropine is not effective. One of the common pitfalls to atropine is waiting for it to work too long before moving to a chronotropic drug. And we're all guilty of this one. We want to hope that atropine works and we delay any other medication administration because we're just hoping that atropine will work. All right, so let's take a sidestep and talk about the use of atropine in second degree and third degree heart blocks. In second degree atrioventricular nodal blocks, AV blocks is a varying failure of conduction through the AV nodes and some of the P waves may not be followed by a QRS complex. In a second degree type 1 AV block, it's characterized by an increasing delay of AV nodal conduction until a P wave falls and isn't conducted through the AV node. This is seen as a progressive PR interval prolongation with each B until a P wave is not conducted. So that's the one where you see the P wave get further and further and further away until it disappears for a QRS complex and then comes back again. The second degree type occurs when conduction within the AV node itself is delayed and it can be caused by AV blocking medications or increased vagal tone. AV nodal ischemia during an inferior MI can cause AV nodal blocks as well. Lobitz 2 is more likely due to a structural damage in the conducting system. It's usually due to a failure of conduction at the level of the Hiss-Purkinje system, which is below the AV node. In the second degree type 2, AV nodal blocks and the AV node becomes completely refractory to conduction on an intermittent basis. So with these ones, you don't get a warning when your P wave disappears. Like the type 1, you get a warning because it starts going further apart. And the type 2, it just disappears without a warning. So when looking at AHA, they state that for Mobitz 2 and a complete block, Atropine should not be relied on. 
This does not mean that it's contraindicated. It just means that you shouldn't rely upon it because there's a good chance that it won't work. It may not work because atropine blocks the action of the vagus nerve. Atropine works at the SA and AB node through its effect of the vagus nerve. And since conduction abnormalities associated with the second degree type two and third degree heart blocks, the site of action for atropine won't make a significant effect. So let's get into our last topic of atropine. Organophosphate compounds are used as commercial insecticides and are applied as aerosols or dust. They can be rapidly absorbed through the skin and mucous membranes or by inhalation. Organophosphate toxicity occurs when acetylcholinesterase inhibitors that form a stable, irreversible covalent bond to the enzyme. This occurs at the cholinergic junctions of the nervous system, including those prostaglandic parasympathetic junctions, which are the sites of the muscularinic activity, the autonomic ganglia, and the neuromuscular junctions, which is the site of nicotinic activity, and certain synapses in the central nervous system. Acetylcholine is the neurohumoral mediator at the cholinergic junctions. Since acetylcholinesterase is the enzyme that degrades acetylcholine following stimulation of the nerve, by inhibiting acetylcholinesterase, organophosphates allow acetylcholine to accumulate, and the result in initial excessive stimulation is followed by depression. When a patient has a suspected organophosphate poisoning in the muscularinic signs, can be used to describe the mnemonic of sludge. So this is salivation, lacrimation, urination, diaphoresis, gastrointestinal upset, and emesis. These can progress to bronchospasms, bronchorrhea, blurred vision, bradycardia, or tachycardia, hypotension, confusion, and shock. Some of the nicotinic effects are skeletal muscles become involuntary or irregular. Then you get violent muscle contractions, followed by the inability to repolarize the cell, membranes causing a weakness and paralysis. Severe reactions can lead to a ventilatory failure and eventual death. The treatment for this is to start with a termination of exposure, including removing all those clothings. Airway control and adequate oxygenation are also very important, and most likely you're gonna have to intubate these patients. And it's usually due to laryngospasms, bronchospasms, bronchorrhea, or seizures. Immediate aggressive use of atropine may eliminate the need for intubation. The endpoint for atropine is dried pulmonary secretions and adequate oxygenation. Tachycardia and mydris must not be used to limit or stop the subsequent doses of atropine. Don't forget we're giving a large dose of it. The main concern with organophosphate toxicity is respiratory failure from excessive airway secretions. So you start with a large IV bolus. So you start at two, four, eight, 16. You double it every time. 
You repeat it every three to five minutes until the desired effects of drying the pulmonary secretions and adequate oxygenation are achieved. Always think about doubling the dose for rapid control of patients that are in severe respiratory distress. So, atropine has many uses in medicine today. It's grown from its initial use as a cosmetic and has evolved into the cardiac drug that we use now. With the positive effects that we see in the use of bradycardia and organic phosphate poisoning, it's become a necessity in pre-hospital care. If you're interested in learning more about atropine, I would encourage you to look further into it. As always, everyone, have a safe day. Thanks for listening to the Falk Salem Podcast. We welcome any feedback you may have, or if you have suggestions for future content, please send an email to nicholas, that's N-I-C-H-O-L-A-S, dot vaneps, V-A-N-E-P-P-S, at falk.com. Thank you for all your hard work and have a safe shift.